you you sorry you teach science is weird yeah i'm the founder of a company called science is weird uh we started at the very beginning of the pandemic and um where i just started doing things that i was doing in the classroom already and then it really took off and my um, and I've been very excited about that. Um, but, uh, but because of that, I've had to move everything in my, I mean, I just this sort of steady upgrading of what my recording technology is. So when you say you have moving blankets up all over, like, I'm assuming they're not physically moving. Are they got moving pictures on them or what, what do you mean? Not no, like no, the sorry, big, sorry. Adjective, not, yeah, yeah. Not participle, gerund. Yeah, no, it's just like they, you, the kind of blankets that you purchase for cheap from a, Home Depot store or whatever. Uh, uh, in order to, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. See, I just read a very moving post about education last night, so my my head is in a totally different context. Um, I did too. Okay, so can I just give a little bit of backstory of like me and the two of you for a second? Absolutely, sure. Um, S- Stephen, I'm really interested in knowing what your drone vision of the future is, because um, you know I did my like my requisite Google snooping of the both of you after you know like yeah. a year of like listening avidly to your podcast. Um, but I realized like I don't oh, really you. know who these people are, um, Stephen. But you are basically a cipher online. This is very difficult to find out anything about you. Thank goodness. Um, I uh, share a name uh, with a famous uh, soccer player, so. Yes, you do. Yes, 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 you do. Um, uh, Eniash, yeah. What was I? What was I talking? What, what? What was it that provoked my? No, oh, I was talking Stephen about your writing, and your work. No, it was. Oh, okay. okay. My kids and I have spent a good long time listening to Harry Potter's and Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, and I never oh. put together the fact that you were you. <laughs> I, I was so excited yesterday. Oh my god! Okay. Hey, I'm very you, happy to hear that. How how the heck did you get Joe Zoe Chase to be on on that <laughs> podcast? Dude, it is the coolest thing in the world. I it was I don't know. I was just in my phase of saying yes to everything and trying lots of things and I fucking love her voice. I have such a crush on her voice. <laughs> and so I was just like, you know, I, I randomly wrote into a few people. I got fucking Dan Carlin of Hardcore History oh to God. do a voice just by writing in and be like, "Hey, I got a Harry Potter fan cast. Can you do a voice?" He's like, "Yeah, sure. I love Harry Potter." Anyways, <laughs> I just did the same thing. I found Zoe Chase's email at NPR and I was like, "Hey, Zoe Chase, I'm a huge fan. I love you on Planet Money. All my nerd friends would be like so in awe of me if I could get your voice just for a few lines here on this podcast of mine. And Zoe's like, yeah, sure, no problem. And she had access to like the NPR studios with all the foam on the walls and these $1,000 microphones. It sounded so good. And I was like, oh my God. So yeah, just I just asked. I, I got to say like my entire image of rationalism, of like how uh, I, I consider myself a rationalist, which is to say that I'm like, I'm not really sure if I'm a rationalist or not, which is true. I think of all of the rationalists. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. so I, I say this from inside the camp, but I feel like my understanding of like how mainstream rationalism had gone was changed when Zoe, when I heard Zoe Chase's voice on, on that, oh. on, on your podcast, which now maybe I need to like rescind that. I need to update on, on, on that belief. Like, no, actually like <laughs> you were just selling yourself out to anybody with an email account, but uh, you, you should know that like, that was actually kind of a big moment for me. Oh, neat. Yeah. I, I, I was just, well, not anyone with an email account, but you know, people that I listened to and admired, I was like, I love their podcast. I would love to get their voice on my podcast. And I tried, I, I do think it's definitely gone a lot more mainstream than before. I hear like a lot now in podcasts, people talking about steel manning or mountain baileying and various things that, I mean, obviously mountain baileying didn't originate in the rationalist uh, sphere, but it was popularized there. And steel manning just literally straight up invented quite a few terms that were coined by Yudkowsky just show up everywhere now. And uh, that's pretty awesome. I hear people I say carve reality at the joints and Moloch and, you know, all the, the 
important map and territory business. I, I hear people that never talk about rationality use map and territory. Uh, yeah, it's great. Well, but the map is not the territory is Kopi. It's key. I can't. Inyash, you can maybe pronounce that name. The the major. I cannot. Okay. okay. All right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, Yukaski you didn't invent it, but I think he popularized it. But you're right. Okay. People, yeah. Some people definitely came to it from from elsewhere. Um, and there's more than one things that were literally coined in the rational sphere, oftentimes by Yukaski himself that are popular now. Like everybody knows about the paperclip maximizer. Everybody uses steel man. It's just out there. There's podcasts that I'm sure have never touch the rational sphere that say talk about steel manning things um Inyash, before we actually get started I, I don't perhaps we are started right now but uh you you are you you must be aware of this that your name mm. is you are literally named after the first fan fiction character uh oh 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 Aeneas from the Aeneid. yes yes Yes, yes. I, you know, I hadn't thought of it as fan fiction before, but you're right. It, I do. I mean, all mythology is fan fiction, though, so it wasn't like the first one. But you're right; it was the first one that was an explicit ripoff of something else. Yes, yes, right. This little minor character, like who you probably kind of missed, right? But he's important because mm-hmm. Poseidon saved him at one point or something like that from something. I don't know. Uh, it's been too long, and I've never read the Aeneid. Uh, but here's his story. Um, I, I'd heard the Aeneid once upon a time referred to as the first fan fiction and then when i learned the etymology of your name like oh my gosh she's gonna love this if he doesn't know it already yeah it's wait it's pronounced the aeneid um i mean that's how it was pronounced to me in my memory so absolutely okay (laughs) (laughs) that's what i'm going with i've I've never heard it pronounced by someone with an education before so or at least not before i had tainted them by mispronouncing it in front of them so cool yeah, I, I I was aware. My dad was a big fan of the classics, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think I don't know. I had this whole theory in my head that since he was naming me as they were planning to flee from uh, from Poland, that it was part of this whole mythical journey to flee from one land and go to <laughs> another and start a new life. And he was like, <laughs> I asked him about this a few years ago. He's like, "That's really cool." No, I just thought it was a cool name in a story I liked. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to stick with mine and tell people that one. You can invent your own mythology for it. Why not? Exactly. So where do you guys so, want to take this? Uh, in, I'm doing my, you know. Uh, wait, 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 hold on. Before we start, start all that, since, <laughs> since you asked us uh, some things about us, we got to ask about you. How did you come into this whole rationality business? Oh, my God. I had a couple friends who had asked me if I'd ever heard of this blog called Slate Star Codex before. And, you know, mm. the answer is, was no until it was yes. And I read, um, what's the title of it? Man was made, the categories were made for man, not man for the categories. And that yeah. was like it. I, I still oftentimes refer people. I mean, I referred like a couple hundred kids to that. And their parents, right, to that to that essay huh. um, recently as part of the the science company that I that I do in the curriculum that we make, um, just because it was such a wonderful example of wow, this idea. Uh, sorry for any listeners here. Y- y- you guys can Google it. Um, uh, <laughs> it's just such a basic idea of how you, we should be using words and categories, and it's it's not rocket science. It's just it's just the simplest possible thing, of course. But nobody does it. And it's not part of like any particularly scholar, particular scholarly disciplines domain where you're supposed to learn that. And it was just a wonderful kind of like entree, entry, entry into like the world of maybe there are some really important simple ideas that not to say that nobody's ever stumbled upon them, but like people haven't like cons- 
consistently been putting them together and trying to live by them. So I, I, that, that was my entree into it. Nice. It's, I don't know. It's always fascinating finding people who, like when you first found it, I mean, when I first found Less Wrong, or I guess Overcoming Bias at the time, like it immediately grabbed me. I was like, this is a thing that has been kind of like in my mind, in my brain, lurking the whole time. But here's someone who has put it into words. And this is like absolute catnip. Did you have the same initial burst of wonder? I think I read like all of the uh, uh, Slate Star Codex posts from 2014 to like 2017, one at a time as quickly <laughs> as possible. So yes. Jesus. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, we, I, that, that is fascinating. I, I'm always happy to meet a new rationalist and hear how their thing is going. Um, we are here talking Wait, to you hold today. On a second. I didn't get to go. Yes, Stephen. It's not that interesting, but I, I feel left out. Uh, I was listening to Rationally Speaking, and I can't remember how I the the, the backward trajectory is is vague. My autobiographical memory is is uh, bad, to put it lightly. I know I I was I think I was introduced to like counterculture skeptical thinking by George Carlin, and at some point found the Skeptoid podcast. And, uh, then it was rationally speaking. And I remember as I was in the car, I was delivering pizzas in college, listening to rationally speaking. And at the end, the, uh, Julia Galef and Massimo would plug like their, you know, what's captured our rational fancy this week. And Julia mentioned Harry Potter and methods of rationality, this, this fanfic by this AI developer. Um, and I, I remember I was at a stoplight and I made a note in my phone to read this <sighs> and got around to it like six months later. And I was like, oh my God, I love this. And at the beginning of the story, he says, if you, want to, if you want to learn everything Harry knows and more, check out lesswrong.com. And I did. And I loved it. And like, like you know, I said, it was a lot like um, just articulating things that like, oh, of course, that makes sense. And what a great way to put it. And what's great is we go back and we're, we're now like doing, you know, a couple sequence posts a week or an episode. And like, it feels um, more intuitive now, but the, like, I know that it wasn't at the time. And so it, it's... It just means that it's sunk in, which is great. Um, yeah. And I, th- I think, Steven, you know, I was, okay. was going to say, you asked about, uh, I don't know how you found out that I worked at a drone company. Um, actually, I'm curious Google. about that. Just go, Google? LinkedIn, LinkedIn, I think. Oh, yeah. I thought I thought that stuff was private. But anyway, yeah, so uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all right. Um, Brandon so, is a master hacker. What, 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 the, com- <laughs> what the company does is uh, we... We don't we don't make drones. We don't manufacture them. We don't we don't program them. We give drone pilots uh, the ability to get quick authorization through the FAA to fly commercially or recreationally. Um, yeah, that's what ChatGPT like, told me actually. Yeah, yeah. I so that's pretty funny. We, we actually have a channel on on our we use Teams because that's the, that's the one bad thing about the company is we we use Microsoft Teams and Outlook. Um, but we have a channel called Future Memories. And, uh, it was my turn. We pick a random person after, you know, someone else has done, it was my turn. And I, I've published mine on the one year anniversary that I had worked there. And I said it nine years later and don't tell my boss, but I had ChatGPT basically write the whole thing for me. <laughs> but I, I told, I told it about me and it knew about the company. And I had said, Hey, paint, paint a picture of what this looks like down the road. Um, oh. that, that said my, my actual future vision for the company is, uh, at some point, Jeff Bezos is going to kick in the door and said, I'd like to buy your, buy your product. And <laughs> I have some stock in the company. So uh, that, that's, my, that's my actual end game future for it. Um, I, don't, I don't know how, how realistic drone delivery is for like lar- you know, large scale delivery. But for, for small stuff that you need quickly, it's great. Actually, if you're, if you're 
the least bit curious. The CEO's name is Michael Helander. He did like an eight minute Ted talk um, in which he summarizes the vision of the company really well. He has all of the charisma and bright, shiny teeth of a great cult leader. And he's awesome. (laughs) Um, So I, he's, he's, uh, and I, if, if this ever gets back to him, Michael, I think that's a, I mean, that is a huge compliment. Uh, It it's, it's a, it's a really great place to work. Um, I would like to meet him. I need some cult leader training. Man, yeah, he's great. It's, it's like what's, the other, like, not not to take us too far off, but like it's interesting. Even like, so I, I got to meet everybody uh, at the company and and hang out with like the. It, there's only like 50 employees, but I got to go to work uh, for a week last month. We went down to we went to Detroit, and uh, like even when he's just talking to us, like he's still <laughs> selling the product. Like it, mm-hmm. it's just like it's it's baked into his bones now, and it's 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 perfectly organic and natural the way that he does it. It's really cool. Steven, I don't know if uh, you caught it, but your origin story makes a cameo in uh, uh, the real fanfic is the friends we made along the way. I haven't finished reading it yet. Ah, okay. Okay. Well, uh, I, I have the, uh, the audio version, uh, but it's not that good. Um, yeah. So I just need to sit down and actually read the thing, but that's really sweet. I can't wait. Are you kidding me? Wow. How fun. Nope. Not kidding. That's that's awesome. Oh. I mean, it, it's it's embellished a little bit, but uh, yeah, it's it's the guy sitting at a quick reference to a guy sitting at a stoplight listening to a podcast, and it uh, has major effects on his life later. Enosh, I'm touched. That's that's delightful. <laughs> oh, the the whole thing is just chock full of references to everything. It is. It was my every other sentence must be a reference to something story. <laughs> Love it. Was it. A lot of fun. Uh, did so. I then one quick question for you. So you got you got Zoe Chase. You got um. Shoot, one of the guys from uh, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Yeah, Jay uh, Novella. Right, Jay. Because um, there's a, there's the other novella that I get cro- confused with. There's uh, three novellas, in fact. Oh, dang. Um, you know, you got Yukowski, D- you know, Dan Carlin. Did, did you email anybody who said no? Uh, I emailed a couple of people who didn't reply, which, you know, is effectively a no, but I don't want to say who they are because that just seems kind of rude. Oh, no. Yeah, I didn't mean to like, I wasn't putting them down or anything. Some people are busy. They don't check their inboxes and... You know, yeah, I can't say I've, for sure. I've had that problem yes, myself. Right? Yeah, my mm-hmm. mind scrolls back to all of the emails that I have not responded to right now. Yeah. Oh, I have an email address which I haven't even checked in a few months, which I probably should go and check. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. But yeah, yeah. Oh, and uh, and Brandon, one question for you. Uh, so science is weird. This this might be a question you can't answer, but where have I heard of that? I know that I, I, uh, I, I buy um, probably nowhere if you don't have kids um, and if you're not a homeschooler, we're bigger and bigger in the sort of the secular homeschooling community. Um, but I buy some advertising on the Astral Codex 10 podcast. So possibly, possibly that. Also, when oh. I was announced as the winner of the of the book review contest, um, uh, you know, we, we all got to write our little bio lines. Um, Brandon Hendrickson is the founder of Science is Weird, uh, making an epic, sprawling science curriculum for kids. Kids, ages, whatever to whatever. Yeah. The thing is, I, 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 so I don't have kids and I, I'm not that close with my nieces and nephew. I, I think, uh, I, I must've heard of it on a podcast, like mentioned somewhere huh. once. Maybe, maybe it was, maybe it was the, uh, clear thinking podcast. Maybe it was, uh, I doubt it. Maybe that would be really cool. I doubt it. We're, we started small and we're middle, lower middle size, I think right now. But you're, but you're doing stuff that I think, uh, you know, people love. This is great. So. Um, yeah, maybe we should yeah. get started. You know, this this unorganized stuff can go out to patrons or something. But uh, you, you want to roll in, and then we could talk about briefly. Science is weird. Then jump into the book review. Um, I think maybe. Well, here from you guys can do whatever you want, and I will just uh, sit here like a fish and answer questions. 
because that's what fish do. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> but I would actually suggest the book review. Then science is weird. I, you know, rationalists. We don't have that many children. I have three, um, but then I also just got Thank an operation. That means I will not have any more children, right? We don't have we don't have that many. <laughs> we don't have that many children, um, so I'm not I'm not trying to sell uh, to the, to to our community here. Well, well, and three is on the on the high side for rationalists. A lot of them have you know one or less. <laughs> right, yeah. You, yeah. You've, you've gone past replacement rates, and you're you're uh, planting the true seeds of rationality into kids across the world. So. I mean, uh, that's yeah. with the business, with the teaching, that's great, right? Like that gets me up in the morning. The uh, the idea that I have um, passed along my genes and then some, that just hits all of the icky notes with uh, that, you know, that eugenics uh, hits in people. So uh, yeah, I'll agree to one of those more than the other. <laughs> oh. See, I personally, this is a crusade I plan on going on, not maybe be a crusade, but a, a journey I plan on going on sometime in the near future is just getting rationalists to have more children because- I've kind of been thinking we we are sort of going extinct and that's not great. Like literally just taking ourselves out of the gene pool. And I kind of feel like the opposite should be the case. We got a lot of good things to contribute. But we can expand memetically too. We don't have to expand genetically. So that is true, but we should do both. Yeah, why not? All right. You want you let's let's do our, our actual intro so we can we can find a way to start the podcast. Welcome okay. to Relations Conspiracy. I'm Stephen Zuber. I'm Inyash Brodsky. Brandon. Oh, I'm, I'm, I, I would. I, I wasn't gonna. Okay, <laughs> I'm not really sure what to do right now. Just keep silent. And I'm we really Brandon should have told you before. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brandon Henderson. We have Hen- uh, alluded Hendrick. to this a couple. Sorry, Hendrick. Yeah, sorry, I meant to cut you off. You said Henderson. Yeah, Hendrickson. Yes, uh, we we've alluded to this a couple times, but uh, I think the reason we're here is because you are one of a very small handful of humans on the planet who has won the ACX book uh, review contest. Well, and so I don't first of all, congrats gloat. on that. Thank you very much. And I don't mean to like gloat too much, but I'm actually the very first person to win the ACX book review contest without getting a majority of the votes. What? Oh, was it split enough that no one person got a majority? No, it's worse than that. It's that Scott entered the contest in his review. (laughs) So I won because he thought it was in bad taste to crown himself the winner. (laughs) I I I mean, he's not wrong there. Yeah. So I mean, so if the only person to beat you at this is Scott Alexander, I think that that still puts you in in a very small uh, group of, of elites. So. Yeah, it's like saying the only person who was able to outrun me was Hussein Bolt. So, yeah, it's, well, I mean, it's high praise still. I mean, especially when you look at the other two people uh, who have won in the past, right? Uh, Lars and mm-hmm. uh, Eric Hole, right? Like Eric Hole, like writes like an angel speaks. It's just he's 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 in Super Bowl. He's uh, like it bothers unless, me. Unless he he's is. writing about effective altruism. Oh yeah, no, yeah. Here, let, let's not. I'm sorry, I forgot to whom I was speaking. I uh, uh, let's let me just pretend that I didn't say that on this podcast. No, no, no. Um, I, I I think the guy. I think he's great. I, I disagree with his take on there 100. percent But I I called out a few weeks ago that I I loved his take on um uh you know the new wave of artificial intelligence. Uh, that that same uh, podcast host, what was it? Uh, uh, Russ Roberts said that he wasn't scared until he read uh, Eric Hole's essay on it. So, yeah, uh, right. if he's out there scaring people on this, I think he's doing he's doing the good uh, the good work there. Yeah. yeah. 
And I mean, EA isn't like perfect. There's there's been some valid critiques from people like Zv and and others. It's uh, but none, it's none got, from Eric. <laughs> but none from Eric. There we go. And, All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and the other person who won before, if I can just move on from that, uh, Lars, mm-hmm. uh, with with the with the Georgism stuff, and really seeming to bring uh, Georgism, Georgist economics into. I don't know if it's mainstream yet, and I really don't know how much specifically he has done. It seems to me like he's done everything, um, uh, but like my gosh, like he's out there doing really important work in economics. So the idea that I like, oh, like I'm, I'm to be, I am to be included in this pantheon of three people is just like every once in a while, it's like wake up in the morning and my brain will go, "Wow, do you think you're, do you think you're going to win the book review contest?" And I go, "I want it." <laughs> very exciting <laughs> that's so awesome he, he did the the dawn of everything uh all right cool whole, i'll yeah, check whole that out reviewed yeah. graber's uh work uh the dawn of everything that's right great great review too i studied right, both of those reviews very much in order to write mine so so you you were uh flattering enough to to express i, I don't know how to say being a fan without sounding super pretentious to myself and, and, and to Enyash mostly, but, um, groveling can adulation, I, can I, I believe is the phrase. <laughs> well, can, can I, can I just, uh, uh, grovelingly adulate your writing ability here? Um, yes. Like it, it was long, but I was, I was excitedly scrolling. And the only thing that slowed me down really was that ASX is a website for some reason takes up 500 gigs of, or 500 megs of memory just to open a web like text page. Um, but holy heck, man, like you're summarizing dense uh, uh, subject matter in a way that like is gripping, gives relatable examples, makes me feel like, oh, my God, I totally get this. And I've totally been there. It it was uh, I it's no wonder you won. This was it was a riveting read. I've sent it to, to people. Um, I I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank and you very much. I want to add in that the visual of these um different types of knowledge that was slowly built upon and filled in as we went. Like once it actually clicked to me what it was doing, it, it was just a wonderful aid for understanding. And I appreciated it. I had that moment of sudden comprehension grokking at like, I don't know, oh. four fifths of the way through the, uh, the, oh. the picture uh, thing. Would, would it be good for me to give a nutshell of the thesis of the, of the entire thing for your listeners who perhaps have not read this 70 70- page sprawling tome of a book review uh in the recent past i recommend everyone yes. read it however almost you know not everyone will so please i want to talk mostly in depth about a lot of it but yeah give give, give your overview and we'll we'll dive into it i think yeah, I, I took like four my... pages yeah, yeah, sorry go for it oh i i took like four pages of notes as i was reading through it and hopefully we can touch on them as we go but let's start out with your uh encapsulation or summary or whatever you'd like So I think the simplest way of nutshelling the thing is to say that schools, insofar as schools have been set up for academic purposes, and maybe there's a conversation about like why are schools really set up, but insofar as they are set up to teach kids the things, (laughs) um, there is this assumption that's been made about about the kind of understanding that we want kids to have, right? It's the sort of modern, scientific, erudite, rational, um, I don't know what other words we want to put on that, but stuff like that, uh, sort of understanding. And we are then surprised when kids have a really hard time getting it, and most of them uh, go through the schooling system and barely get any of it at all. Um, and uh, Egan's point is that, look, that kind of understanding that we want kids to have there's a history behind that that came from somewhere that that has its own kind of like certain 
logic, right? Like the sort of like logical way of seeing the world has its own internal logic. It It's not natural to people. It's not the sort of thing that can be pounded into people. It, if you And then if you look at where it comes from, even kind of historically, you see that like before people had this modern, rational way of looking at the world, they had this these other kinds of ways of looking at the world that had a lot of commonalities. They all used stories. They all used metaphors. They all used um, abstract binary opposites. They all used puddle, puzzles and riddles and things of that nature. Um, and if you really steer into those kinds of tools in the early years of education, you can get to the spot where the kids just have like knowledge that is overflowing and they want, they want some new tools to be able to make sense of, of this knowledge. They want to have this new understanding of, they want a new understanding of the world to make sense of all the things that they're learning. Um, and this historically is seemingly where, uh, like the Greek miracle, right? That happens, you know, like 500, 400 BCE um, uh, seems to come what from- What is the Greek miracle? I mean, it's the what we call um, the beginning of um, archaic Greek, of, 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 of classical, excuse me, classical Greece. Um, you know, like you have in a couple cities that are like the size of my hometown, um, which nobody has ever heard of before. Uh, we have in a couple of these small cities like some of the most important thinking that has ever been done in world history. Um, and the question historically has always been, what the heck were they drinking? <laughs> what was going <laughs> on in these places? Um, and so, um, and, and in one of the important insights is that they had already built up all of this knowledge. That's not unique to them, but it is a necessary piece of how you get to modern rational thought. And so Egan's idea, I, this took more than 30 or 45 seconds or whatever it was that I said, um, um, is that like you you start with the things that kids are good at stories and riddles and games and metaphors and whatever um, uh, songs and rhymes and like you can quickly build up so much understanding that they then want to um, uh, develop these new tools of uh, modern rationality uh, to get there that is a brilliant encapsulation uh, yeah what one of the first notes that I took uh, here at the beginning is that um Adults tend to treat children as if they're lesser adults, that they have the same basic reasoning. They just kind of suck at it. And and Egan points out that we should like try to observe kids as if we're Jane Goodalls and looking at them out in the wild and see the kind of things they gravitate to and that they do really well. And uh, that is what their early education should all be, should all work towards to lean into all those strengths that kids have and and they will just naturally absorb it all. Is this, what are those things that the kids are very good at? Um, you know, whenever, when I was in college, if you asked me, what are the classes that you're taking, Brandon? I could always say like two thirds of them. And it was never the same two thirds. And I have the same problem with, uh, with the sort of these early strengths, these early tools. So let me cheat right now and grab out the book that I, uh, I modeled my, picture in that book review off of just to like skim some of these. Okay. So like the biggest one is, is story. Um, but you also have just one second. Okay. Sorry. My computer did a weird thing. Um, you also have, uh, things like metaphors. Uh, you have things like a sense of mystery. You have role playing, right? Kids love to role play. And like, if you know pedagogically how to like really tweak out role playing, my goodness, can you do a lot with it? I'd be happy to give examples for that. Something like a vivid mental image, right? Like you, you think about 
I don't know. Is it Kali in the Hindu tradition who between? I mean, here I'm gonna get this so totally wrong. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go Western. I'm gonna say uh, Jesus on the I cross, think, right? I was gonna say I don't think either of us equips, are equipped to correct you. So <laughs> well, then that's especially dangerous. So let me know. But your but your listeners will be. Um, uh, Most of what uh, I know about Kali but, comes from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So. <laughs> a, uh, a still underrated movie because nobody likes to say anything positive about it ever. Um, I really uh, like it. I think it's a good one. Maybe I should. Yeah, it was delightful. It, I mean, it, I don't know why people hate it. It's as good as Raiders of the Lost Ark. Is it kind really? of better in some places? I thought so. Maybe because I saw it first, and then when I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, I was like, "This is this is the same thing as Temple of Doom. Why is this so overrated in comparison?" I know that George same Lucas was some years ago and said like, man, I was really going through some hard times when I was making <laughs> that movie. I think he was going through a divorce and like, that's what he gives. Uh, that's how he explains uh, why it's so like overly violent and, and disturbing and whatever. I Pasha. loved overly violent and disturbing. That's exactly what I was there for. But you're goth. So, okay. Okay. You know what? That makes sense. Okay. This is fine. Okay. Yeah. 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 Agree. Agree. Okay. Didn't need to really too hard though. Jesus on the cross. Where were we? The reason yeah. that I bring up Jesus on the cross for this is um, uh, vivid mental images, right? Like there are these certain things mm-hmm. that you just get like stuck in your head. And I don't even mean like a picture in a book, although that can happen there too, right? Like these these pictures, they just get stuck in your head and you use them. You don't just think about them. You use them to think with. Ditto metaphors, ditto stories, dittos, these like abstract binary opposites. Basically, like everything that Pixar uses to make a good Pixar movie and that Pixar does not use enough of to make a subpar Pixar <laughs> movie, right? Like you can look at how narrative works and just say, oh, like there, it's obvious that human minds are really good at handling huge amounts of information um, uh, if it's given in certain forms. And what's weird is that these are not like the simplest quote unquote forms to give that information. And you can actually like communicate a heck of a lot more information if you use like the tools that every storyteller ever has used. So the, the idea is not like that we should like just tell stories in classrooms. That would be stupid. Although maybe there's some good that would come in that. Um, but uh, we should use the tools that storytellers have used for eons to teach fractions and to teach uh, electron orbitals and whatever. I loved your example with the earthworm where one was just like a list listing of earthworm facts. And the other one was basically giving those same facts, but guiding kids through imagining themselves being an earthworm and wriggling in the dirt and all that. And it was just so much more evocative and interesting. And you made this point that humanity has a built-in VR system and we're (laughs) not using it. And like, I distinctly remember as a kid, sometimes just sitting on the couch or playing on the swing or something and just imagining stories and, you know, people fighting and things blowing up and daring rescue for hours, just imagining stuff in my head. And it was wonderful. And yeah, it's just, it's right there. Why aren't we doing, using this? One of Egan's here, I, can I actually just back up for a second and say, we keep using this word that is not a word, Egan. Can I just explain for a sec who uh, Egan is, was? Please. Uh, Egan uh, was a Irish, English, American, Canadian uh, educational philosopher who died less than two years ago. Um, uh, he found his eventual whole uh, academic home um, at uh, Simon Fraser University, which is outside of um, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, in Canada. Um, and uh, and he, you know, was one of these people who's just like classically schooled. And I think his undergraduate was in um, was history. Um, he has this anecdote that has really like meant a lot 
to me, which was um, he was asked after his freshman year of college, what is the most important thing that you learned this year? And he said, Anglo-Saxon law. Hmm. And hmm. the person asking him said, oh, no, I meant like about getting together with your roommate, like getting, getting along well with your roommates or, you know, about life or whatever. And he said, oh, I see. Anglo-Saxon law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this idea that when you learn something like really well, like it's emotionally, it's emotional, it's meaningful uh, to you. It is vivid, right? It excites you. Um, and that, um, and that there, we should not draw this uh, strict boundary between like things that are academic and things that are personal and, um, and there's sorts of things that people do in their free time, like Eniash sitting on a swing and pretending to blow up whole armies with bombs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, usually they were lasers that came out of my arms, but yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> right? Natural, Always go for maximum cool when you're imagining. Natural storyteller here. I mean, and to, to your point, or to, to Egan's point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to keep calling your points, or Egan's points, your points, because I think they, they line up. But Well, uh, in the book review, me, they, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I ever attribute something to you that isn't your, your position, correct me. But like... I was going to use the earthworm example too. Like I'd never thought of it that way. I have thought of like locomotion of other critters, you know, like gravity isn't as important to ants as it is to us, you know, cause they're, they're small enough that fall damage isn't really a thing and they can, they can climb walls and stuff. And, uh, you know, like the, the different, it, well, actually the reason that I think of things like that is because I've read popular science books that talk about things that way. Like it's disappointing that, and, and like I, I like science classes, and I think that's why I read popular science books. But it it really should have been. It, I think it would have stuck more. For, you know, I, I know a lot of people who didn't take to science in school, and they don't like it as adults. And it's like, man, if you just sit and just marvel, at, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm talking about books like um, uh, Richard Dawkins is Unweaving the Rainbow, um, where it, it's it's just you know the 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 majesty and, and poetry of reality uh, is is awe-inspiring and breathtaking and, and people reduce it down to like well you know it's just light or whatever and it, no man it's it just it, it's not just anything it's so cool uh and, and part of what makes that land is the and and you, it, this is emphasized in your review here as well is that like this isn't i think i think things are taught in such a way that like and now we're going to talk about atoms this is what stuff is made of and <laughs> what would be way more fun introduction is talking about what did people think stuff was made of? Yeah. How did they figure this out? Because that actually makes it a story, makes that stick. And it turns out to be actually interesting that way, right? Um, Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything does that. Like, I think he opens talk. It's been years since I've read it, but he opens talking about, like, I think is wondering how, you know, how that he, he knew that the core of the earth was molten uh, iron. But then he's thinking, how the hell do we know that? Um and 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 the questions of like how we came to know things turn out to be uh such a gripping way to teach people what they act you know a what we know but it it makes it uh i don't know i i guess i i'm just trying to emphasize the value of like putting a narrative behind it that makes it uh a, a story you know my conversion to science to to being interested in science because i actually actively avoided science classes when I was in high school and college, which in retrospect was stupid, um, 
was reading Bill Bryson. Um, my wife and I had gotten married. We were moving from Arizona to Seattle and we got the whole 36 disc CD set <laughs> of, uh, of short history of nearly everything and just like listened to it as we were driving, driving along the Pacific. Uh, and, and just like realizing like, Oh my gosh, like why has this not been explained to me <laughs> this way before? Um, uh, Dawkins actually has a quote to the effect of, Maybe we don't need to just have science classes built for people who will become scientists. And, you know, like it'll teach you like how to, you know, titrate solutions or I, I'm not even pronouncing that right, I'm sure. Um, uh, but, you know, balance equations. But, you know, like these science classes that would help expose you to the wonder of science. And like what I've spent the last few years doing, what I'm going to spend the next, like the rest of this decade <laughs> really like working on is bringing the two of those things together. Because I think even in Dawkins's quote, there's this, Kind of imagining that um, that uh, these are still kind of separate things that you could learn, like the technical things, and you can learn those fast and well, or you could learn the like the romance and the wonder and the joy of uh, of like the the stories of how we figured this stuff out. I don't want to actually overfocus just on the stories, but like the, like the wonder of the world. Um, obviously, Dawkins in his own work does a really good job of bringing these things both together. Um, but uh, but like like but we can do that. <laughs> we we can do that and. When we do that, we find that we can go so much deeper into like the actual vibrant intellectual joy of real content than we were ever able to before. Uh, so like with um with Science is Weird, um the company that I founded to really see how far could an Egan perspective on science take people. Um we've been doing it for 3 years and recently we said okay like we have like mostly new people, like from the very be compared to the very beginnings. Like we should start over at the beginning, and we should do it slowly, and we should do it wonderfully, such that we like tie together everything in the universe <laughs> over six years of courses, and like we're only now a couple months in, maybe maybe two months in at this point. We've had like eight lessons, but like already the kids understand electron orbitals and covalent bonds Whoa. and uh, and hydrogen bonds and like an actual scale of like, they have like a picture in their head of like how large the observable universe is. And they know how like densely packed, like I don't, it's not like a technical knowledge they have. Like they have like a lived felt reality of, um, of how densely packed the universe is with uh with galaxies and, and galaxies with stars <laughs> um uh like what a nebula would feel like if you had god hands um <laughs> uh we zoomed down um uh role playing sorry i mentioned egan and role playing before it was like a year and a half maybe into teaching like really serious science before i realized okay like role playing we could like we could have this nonsense of like having like the the shrink ray from honey i shrunk the kids and we could shrink kids mm -hmm. down to like to be a millimeter tall, you know, they're about a meter tall, uh, a millimeter tall. And then we could shrink them around, uh, 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 shrink them down again to be a micrometer tall. And then again to a nanometer and then to a, a picometer and then to a femtometer. And then we could like look at the, all the things that we're talking about, right? Like what do they look like at each of these scales? And like, how can you understand better what is going on in the world if we just bring this little bit of nonsense and role playing in, which kids are really good at to actually imagine like what is going on inside of an atom. I, I think that that's such a cool way to put it. And I, you mentioned Pixar at least a couple of times in, in the book review here. And like, I, I probably saw this movie when it was new. So whenever A Bug's Life came out, um, I remember there was a scene, at least I think I do, where one of the ants is carrying a ball of water 
and, yeah. and moving it somewhere. And that that's how water works at that scale, you know? Uh, and, and, and so it's, it, it's vivid enough that it stuck with me for decades. And this is the kind of thing that I, I mean, man, maybe somebody should give the Pixar studio a billion dollars to make science movies. Um, or they can give it to uh, to science is weird, and they can do the science movies, right? And you guys can you guys can sub out, you guys can uh, contract out some of the the uh, whatever visual arts stuff to um, Pixar if you want. But that's that's a better use. You're right. Give it give it to science is weird. We, we have many well, billionaire mean, listeners with with uh, yeah. you know, money burning holes in their pockets. So. Are you guys familiar with the channel Kurz? Actually, I, I want to go back to that Bugs Life moment because I think there's actually something really important about science education that people miss, but that XKCD gets so, 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 so right. Mm. Um, but are you guys familiar with the channel Kurzgesagt on YouTube? No, I'm not. I don't think oh, so. Gosh. So just you guys and like all of your listeners, like K-U-R-Z-G-E-S. Okay, now I've uh, S A G T. There we go. Kurz gesagt, Kurz short gesagt, wise. Um, uh, this German originated channel um, that does science education better than anyone has ever done it before. <laughs> it's just so glorious. Um, it's the sort of thing that, like, my kids are just, my 10 year old, my 13 year old are just addicted to. Two. Uh, sorry, their ages just changed. Eleven and thirteen. It's about to change again. I'm a bad dad. Um, <laughs> it but, happens uh, like every year. Multiple <laughs> How times. Do you keep track? Actually, it's it's ridiculous. Um, uh, they're just addicted to watching these things, and because like we homeschool our kids, um, and we do like you know actual serious sort of like classically ish stuff with them. Sometimes we're pretty hands off, and they kind of wake up almost whenever they want and whatever. Um, uh, but like they can have deep conversations about advanced evolutionary theory like at the dinner table right like to what extent should we take nice. like the hill metaphor uh, sorry, there's a, what's the word for this um the the, the hill metaphor hill of climbing? Like, yeah 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 thank you hill climbing metaphor uh like, to what extent should we take that seriously like what do the I mean, scott alexander pointed out recently like what do the x and y variables and that chart even refer to, or is this just totally abstract? Um, uh, and like looking at like real animals and like imagining their evolutionary histories and their, their phylogenies, um, and like arguing about them, right? Like this is the sort of thing that like you can get on YouTube now because YouTube is, you know, this beautifully free market thing where like the most interesting and usually most accurate science videos are the ones that get the most likes that YouTube actually has a problem of really crap science too that gets likes. But, um, but like you have in Kurzweil and a number of other channels, tier zoo is another really fantastic one. Um, uh, these wonderful science outfits emerging that have almost Pixar levels of quality, to them. Uh, Curse of Sockt is coming out with their first VR game this month. And like, we don't own a VR system, but maybe we need to own a VR system now because the, everything they do is just so magical. And, and if I can say like, this is something that I meant to bring into the book review and maybe I did it was so a long time ago that I wrote it now. Um, but um, like one of the signs that like Egan is onto something is that it's really difficult to, I think it would be very, very difficult um, uh, to like look at like what are the greatest science v video channels on YouTube? What are they doing right in terms of what ordinary educational philosophy, psychology, whatever 
says that you should be doing. What they're doing looks very little like what is going on in a, what is considered best methods in a ordinary science classroom. Um, but they look exactly <laughs> like uh, what Kieran Egan uh, says uh, great science education should look like. Now, I would actually be very interested in getting an uh, outsider perspective on that. It's entirely possible that I'm just too in the weeds uh, or too in the in the bowl uh, to, uh, to, to judge that accurately. Well, I'm definitely going to check out... Uh because I can't say it either, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll also link to it in the show or in the description. Um, I like a, it, it's tangentially related, but a, a YouTube channel called uh, Technology Connections. And writing that down. Uh, you what? I'm writing that down. Oh, nice. Yeah, he's fun. I mean, I watched a 45 minute video on dishwashers. And hmm. it, so it, it's not, it's not so much about teaching science as it is just like, Hey, you know, like that stuff in your house that like you just use all the time. You're curious what's going on in there. Uh, or, you know, there's several videos on car headlights and CDs and CD players. Well, that, and that is science though. And especially for like young kids who just like want to play with wheels and toys and gears and figure out how it all works and just inspect that stuff for hours. That's, that's what they're into. They, especially the things you see around your house all the time. Yeah. That's the thing is very little of it is like, I can't think of one that has, you know, part, I don't know. Like, wh- why do I hear that clicking noise before my, before the heat comes on or my furnace comes on? Right. Like Wait, oh, why do now you? I know. Um, why do you? Uh, gosh, I, I shouldn't have said now I know. Um, so it's, it's <laughs> kicking on the, the burners in there. And there, there's a, there's a quick check to make sure that all the burners a are coming on correct. Like that, they, that they all come on. And if they don't come on fast enough, it shuts the whole thing down. There's like a lot of safety uh, fallbacks in there. And so before the air starts blowing and stuff, it, 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 it's got some checks in there to make sure that everything is like, you know, the, the fuel rate is coming out correctly and being burned cr- uh, correctly before it starts blowing it into your house. Cause if it, if it just started blowing right away, it would start, it would start blowing gas through instead of hot air. Um, and then of course, if the hot air kicked on, if the, Flames could go on a few seconds later, then you got yourself a nice explosion. So uh, they're they're really built uh, with with um, safety redundancies in mind. But so does is it the only- clicking the spark? I think it's something like that. I'd have to go check. I'd have to double check. But it uh-huh. it's it's one of those things that if I remembered better, I would know how they work. Um, right. But anyway, yeah, well, it, it's just just sorry. Go ahead. Well, there's something magical about that kind of simple question that you feel like. You should be able to answer, but you're not. <laughs> School is full of questions, obviously, um, but most of the questions feel like you shouldn't be able to find out the answer. You've never wondered about the answer before. Um, uh, I like to think about, like, you know, like uh, I don't know, like the whole like sort of Socratic dialogue method, which I'm very, very, very much in favor of. Right? Is like it almost treats all questions. This isn't fair, I think, to it, but I'll say it anyway because it's what was in my head. Um, it treats, it just says that questions are good. We should ask kids more questions and then they'll have to come up with the answers and then it'll be great. But questions can be meaningless and questions can be uninspiring. Um, one of the things that Egan talks about, not as much honestly as he should have, um, is the idea of riddles, which I define, and this is a bespoke definition of this, as a question where you f- really feel like you should know or be able to figure out the answer right now. Like my favorite example of this is what is like, what is the capital of um, um, Sri Lanka, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. That's not a riddle. What is the room in your home right behind your toilet? It uh, there feels one. like you should 
So then what, so that, uh, what is right behind your toilet? If I can ask, uh, in every, oh, I guess there's one toilet in the house that, uh, faces to, uh, that if you punch the hole, punch the wall, you'd get to a closet. The other two face outside walls. And there's, yeah, pro- there's, probably my- re- there's probably a reason for that because that's where all the plumbing goes, right? Yeah, both of my toilets that uh, face an interior wall are into closets as well, closet or pantry. Oh, ones that but I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to, didn't mean job, to ruin the riddle for you. No, 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 no. That wasn't you didn't you didn't in any way ruin it, right? Most people don't think about their houses in three dimensions, right? Like, what is the room if you live in a multi-story uh, domicile? What is the room immediately above or below me? Right, like, how would I get to this room? In if I like, shot a laser, right? Like, if I want like to shoot like a laser into my son's room right now, like, where would I aim it? These are the sorts of things that people oh. don't usually think about, and they require like thinking through like the bigger picture and seeing how things connect together to solve the riddle. I, I have a story about that. I, I was, I think, five or six years old, and I don't know. I was bored. My dad didn't have time to to entertain me. He was like, "Look, here's a graph paper. Here's a pencil." map out our our apartment just for every step that you take along the wall that is one square on the paper i was like cool and i started doing it and i was having trouble and he came over to help me and he was like all right i I see what your problem is see this kitchen wall here what's (laughs) what's on the other side of it and i was like um bricks he was like okay what's on the other side of the bricks i'm like air and he's like no no no. come here and he took me and walked me around to the other side where there was a hallway and my mind exploded and i never lived again because like wait there's oh my god the house is connected there's a different part of the house behind this part of the house it was it was a revelation for when i was a kid I had this realization with like the, with a, with the toilet where what was behind the toilet was the other toilet, which like could not have been at l- less well connected parts of a house. I'd never thought about those things together before. Um, yeah, yeah, no. So yeah, um, what I like, but it's the kind of thing of getting getting how things work, and now it's super clear why that's the case, right? Well, we've got all yeah. this plumbing. We've got all this this toilet plumbing here. Why don't we go ahead and just plug two toilets into it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's getting you to think like a plumber well and 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 more broadly it's getting you to think of like why are things put this way um you know why is this room here when it it could be elsewhere uh like i i love just and this this is i think what school does wrong and so you said you you regretted not taking a bunch of science classes in high school you know i happened to have i had a couple good teachers um but many of them sucked and you know i i went to i think a and a, I don't know. It was a public school, but it was. I, I really, I think they did a good job as as best they could. But like, more often than not, like especially in my younger years, like I, I had teachers that would just tell me to sit down and shut up. But uh, if you you mentioned like Socratically Socratic inquiry, uh, a lot of them I think took that as like you know back talk and and thought I was trying to make them look dumb. But all I was trying to do was understand stuff. But the thing is, like if they don't understand it, then they look stupid in front of a ten year old, and they they don't like that. So uh, yeah. But the like. Get it, getting a picture of so it, just a you know stretch the plumbing analogy. It's like all right, why why is uh, it, it? It gives you the framing of asking why is this the way that it is. And uh, Egan hits that a lot with you know where did each subject matter or e- each school subject kind of come from? You know why do we teach it this way? What was it before? Um, not to not to shove it too back uh, too hard back towards your review here, but. Um, <laughs> I, I think it might be a good idea to get back into the review that we are getting a little off track. I mean, yeah, I'm having sure, a great sure. time, but yeah, there's so much, there's so much good stuff here I want to cover. So, uh, yeah, 
the right now we've been talking mostly about children in the age what is that eight year old to two year old to eight year old age range where they are learning new things and discovering the world and as you point out uh or maybe this is egon i'm sorry uh they it really helps to learn them if each year we focus on binaries because children like that seem to really like binaries like good versus evil or have a year where everything kind of rotates around freedom against oppression binary those those sorts of things each year and all this is to and excite them and make them want to explore these things on their own. Yeah. It's amazing how deep this idea of what he calls abstract binary opposites. And we can just think about as emotional binaries, I think and get 90% of what he's talking about, how deep this goes. Like I remember when I got really into, um, I don't know what to call it, narrative theory or whatever. Like, like why does a good novel work? Why does a good film work? And uh, I'm thinking of like things like uh, Save the Cat and um, the Story Grid. If you guys know um, uh, some of those popular popular books that tell you how to write a screenplay or whatever, um, and what they all say is that your movie or novel or whatever needs to be about like some basic binary <laughs> like that. And there can be a couple of them, but there should be one major one. And then at every moment in the plot. You have to be moving the audience like up or down in this um, danger or sorry, uh, danger or safety or um, uh, ignorance versus wisdom or um, this is slavery versus freedom. And, um, and like, this is like the secret sauce of how human minds seem to be able to track something as complex as a modern movie. Um, and if you build that into like how you give a lecture <laughs> or how you structure like a, you know, some sort of group project or whatever, like my goodness, you will find that people who earlier, like, you know, could not hold 10 cents inside of their head, uh, like all of a sudden now can do really impressive things and following along with what you're doing and even like making insights themselves. I'm trying to think of a, yeah, a sorry, follow that, there's nothing yeah. really to react to there. I, I, I apologize. That was, yeah. that was no, even no, no. a bad <laughs> podcast guest. Oh, you're, you're, no. you're, you're de definitely, I, I don't want to say favorite and put anyone else down, but, uh, you're, hmm. you're, this is, I'm having a, an outstanding time. Um, no, it, it's, I, I think you make a, a good point though. It's, it's just, uh, like, uh, I dropped the thread of what I was going to say, um, Inyash, save me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say that this, uh, this, motivating technique the it seems the um goal of it is to give these children uh so much knowledge so many things bouncing around in their head that uh they move into the next phase of the learning process which uh he calls ages 8 to 15 where they start trying to not just trying to start feeling a desperate need to make sense of all these things and organize them in some way is that correct yeah my yeah, reading no. You know, he definitely says that. And I think that this is where <sighs> part of, oh man, before I, <laughs> so Egan like works on this like very, e Egan says that like the way that we cognitively apprehend the world is through a bunch of these little cultural tools, um, uh, like stories and like theories and like metaphors and like whatever. And you can like for any, any one of those, like you can find a, you know, like a half dozen popular books that are written on like, how does this sort of tool work of the mind, right? Like there's like books on like how metaphor works, blah, 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 whatever. Um, but then on top of that, Egan says that these tools are more than just 
a smattering of tools that there is that these tools come from certain like supra cultures, <laughs> um, not like a specific culture, like, you know, this specific city in ancient Greece or whatever, but like these, these like larger categories of cultures. Um, and his, his notion is that the individual human child in order to like get to the point where they can understand like modern scientific, philosophic, uh, analytical, rational thought, like they have to climb up and bring into themselves these same sorts of cultural, not just tools, but tool kits, these kinds of understanding. Um, and that idea is so weird <laughs> in the current like intellectual milieu um, that, uh, that uh, I ignored it and i didn't ignore it i gave up on trying to explain it for years and the book mm. review was this challenge of okay like i'm i'm obligated to try to really say his crazy sounding idea here so yeah uh he does say exactly inyash as you just said that there's this other like stage there's this other kind of understanding he actually didn't like the word stage but whatever let's just call it a stage um in the middle which we can think of as like the middle school ish age starting from about third or fourth ish grade and going well it never really ends um but like it maybe begins to be you build something on top of it uh in high school uh late high school um but um but he does say that i will say that the easiest way to understand this is to just imagine that there are two of these he has five but to imagine that there are two of these there's like the modern rational whatever thought the word that he comes up with that um is uh is philosophic thinking, which is not the worst name ever. Um, uh, and then there is um, this sort of like m much more natural to human beings um, uh, uh, way of thinking that he calls a mythic, which is not maybe as good as philosophic, but okay. Um, that there are the two of these and that between the two of these, he says, um, there is another kind of thinking and you can catch little glimpses of it throughout history. And it looks a lot like like the first moments in history when you got something like geeks, <laughs> where you <laughs> you see like a f these flashes in like Herodotus's the histories, uh, which uh, Egan calls like the Guinness Book of World Records for the ancient world, where like Herodotus is just beside himself to say, and this other weird thing that I've heard about in Egypt is as follows. Uh, and you can see that in order to make sense of all of this weird anthropological quasi-scientific data that he's getting, he, uh, Herodotus here, uh, like resorts to saying like, what is like the biggest? What is the smallest? What is the, uh, what is the, the, um, the most violent? What is the most peaceful? What is the most civilized? What is the most, I don't know, whatever, um, uh, sort of things that we see in all of the world. Let me give you this tour by looking at just those things. You see it also in, um, uh, like the romantic poets, um, in the transcendentalist poets. You see it in the alchemists. Um, uh, you see it as the early, early in the scientific revolution, as the world is becoming modern. And you see it crucially, I think, from our perspectives, um, in, uh, Stephen, exactly as you were saying before, uh, popular science writing, where people are used, like they're trying to probe these ideas of these like, modern scientific ideas, but they're trying to probe them through like the tools that everybody has, um, story on and so forth. Um, but then like, and they, they end up adding on this like, 
almost like freaks and geeks sort of sorry i've never seen the tv show this like this like <laughs> what is like the freakiest weirdest stuff that is going on here and egan says and i i mean i can see what he's saying and i don't know how far i follow him in this but it's like you see that like if when humanity was young. <laughs> wow, what a, what, a, what a funny sentence to say. Um, like we like just kind of apprehended this, apprehended the world in this very like natural way where it was just like very clear to us exactly what was going on, right? The gods did this and the nature spirits did this and whatever. Um, uh, uh, and then like we started figuring out things about the world and we realized that the world was a separate entity from us. This, sorry, this sounds like I'm raving, that the world was like the separate entity from us and it was not built for us. And it was like beyond what we were able to figure out. And it felt like terrific, but also terrible <laughs> uh, and terrifying. It felt wondrous, um, but it also, sorry, what's the other version of that? It felt um, uh, uh, awesome, but it also felt awful. And you get this sort of like transcendent, like, what is going on in the world sort of sense. And then you finally try to bridge these things with these philosophic, modern, rational, you know, theories and ways of quantifying things and counting things and using um, Bayesian reasoning uh, to figure out things, blah, 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 blah. Now I've, I've ranted for too long, but somebody save, save me. Inyash, save me. You're our okay. only hope. You haven't ranted I, too long. I, I wanted to just, uh, I'll jump in instead, just because I, I can't help myself. The, like, the the awe and awfulness of learning that that the universe isn't about us. I I can't help but think of Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot, um, mm-hmm. and I think he says that it's he says uh, it's often said that astronomy is a humbling and character building experience. And to to, to learn and I, I, that was the whole quote I remember. But what he's getting at is that to, to learn, the, you know, from our our life and to, you know to go back to like how, how children think of stuff in binaries like you know big and small things you know big is bigger than us small is smaller than us um just just how big things are and that that were this this little small part of it in a way that's terrifying and discouraging but in a way it's awe-inspiring and magnificent right um it, it's it's kind of just they're they're two sides of the same coin but it it gets you through this I, I'm having difficulty articulating, but that, that yeah. feeling, like you said, that kind of galaxy brained whoosh feeling where it's just like, whoa, you know, it's talk- that, I, the, not to, not to wax too, too long on it, but the, it's, it's, you know, we're looking at, at the pale blue dot. And actually, again, the fun narrative behind that, you know, the picture, he, it, it, there, there's, there's the fun story that he had to argue to get the NASA scientists to turn the probe around and take a picture of earth after it passed, after it was passing, I think it was Saturn. And they're like, no, that's art stuff. We're scientists over here. And he's like, this would be really valuable, and we should do it. And and, and apparently, it was a it was a battle he had to, had to win to make that to give us that that photograph. And you look at that little speck, and on it is everyone you know, everyone you've loved, everyone who's you know, every every war fought, everyone who's lived and died, all the heroes and all the villains. Like it's all there, right? There's something so uniting about that, and it, and it's. I mean, in, in, and if this was just taught in school, you'd say, yep, everything happened on earth. That's where all humans lived. Right. To, to put it on territory, right? <laughs> but, but to, to go on for a couple of paragraphs about how magnificent that is, is what really just, I, I think, like I said, teaches this correctly. Right. Well, sorry, yeah, yeah, I, what were you going to say? <laughs> here, let me, let me just jump in and respond to that if I can. Um, because there's something like I, I have, 
teenagers now, um, or it's something teenagers for, for teenager and my daughter is 11. So I think she's a teenager. Um, but, uh, right. Like this is like psychologically the sort of thing that teenagers seem to be questing for. They want something bigger than themselves. They want to find heroes that they can believe in here. I'll just say that unironically. Um, they want to, uh, make sense of the world. Um, by like seeing like what are the actual like boundaries of the world? What makes them go woo? And you know, like you can understand how like the 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 propensity for taking substances that make you go woo really ticks up at that stage just developmentally. And one of Egan's notions is that like we can we can give them that. <laughs> we have a lot of woo at our disposal. This metaphor that came to me yesterday when I was when I was um, just thinking about this podcast uh, here, please please give me feedback on this. Is that whenever I look at like the whenever whenever I look at schools, including oftentimes very good schools, I feel like it's like we discover an island in the Indian Ocean that has real live dinosaurs still alive on it, hmm. and this is understood to be amazing. And we like we we get the money. The United Nations like gins up the money to send a group of twenty five students to this island with a you know well trained teacher, and there they sit in a room and they read books about dinosaurs and <laughs> they make models of dinosaurs and they don't go out and see the dinosaurs. And I feel like the way that that metaphor can be misunderstood, and that's exactly what's happening in schools. I feel like the way that that metaphor can be misunderstood, it would be something like, oh, like, so we should have the kids go outside and look at nature. Yes, we absolutely, we absolutely should, but it's possible to go outside and look at nature and not have an actual experience with nature. Like the real thing that we want to do is like knit the world, whether it is the world of like the outdoor grass outside or like the world of, you know, like ancient history or future studies or economics or whatever. We want to like connect the excitement of those disciplines with individual, the individual kids who are in our care. And schools don't oftentimes see that as anything close to the main part of their job. It's just fairly outside of the domain of any educational philosophy. And I've, I, I should know because I followed a few. <laughs> and, um, and Egan puts that at the center of an education. Yeah. You mentioned this uh, in the review that kids of this age, that um, they're they're in love with idealism and extremes, and they really are admiring and wanting to know about heroes, that people that they can look up to and that push on the edges. And they're just absolutely obsessed with gossip, both of you know their peers and these heroes in general. And one of the suggestions given is, like, start using this love of gossip and heroes to teach them. Like, teach them literally the people in the past who discovered these things. Um, and every single thing that humanity knows was discovered by somebody, and we can tell the stories of that person and how they discovered it and draw people in that way because that's actually interesting. And if I can even like piggyback on that, it is really useful – here I'm speaking particularly scientifically – it's really useful um, pedagogically to, to do that because the people who came up with it, these, these ideas that we have kids learn first, they – First, before they came up with it, they had a stupider way of understanding that thing. And frequently, 
those worst ways of understanding it are very similar to the ideas that kids have. Um, mm. So um, when I taught, um, I'm doing a course right now, a five lesson course called Water is Weird. And um, we start with Democritus and the question of what are things made out of. And earlier I'd like dressed on the very first day of class, I dressed up as Thales, um, uh, one of the the, the Ionian Greeks um, who said, uh, who really kind of kicked off, well, arguably, and people usually think that he did, uh, kicked off modern science by just saying, what are things made of? You know, like according to the usual story of uh, ancient Greece, like he's the first person to to ever ask that question, um, and to not just like say, oh, you know, it's made of plants are made of plant stuff, and humans are made of human stuff, and raccoons are made of raccoon stuff. Um, but uh, but like if you go back to Democritus and you say, okay, like are there atoms, and like what are atoms like, and are there elements, and what are like what are elements like, like distinguish those ideas. You get to like go through the f- true and false intuitions that kids have about what the world is. Because of course, the, the truth is that most kids walk around thinking that water is an element and thinking that fire is an element and thinking that air is an element. And if you ask them, like, like you know, are these things elements? If they've had a scientific understanding, you know, they'll say, they'll say no, they're, they're not elements, right? The air is a mix and fire is whatever. Um, but they won't actually be thinking in terms of the science that they learned. So by, sorry, this is a long way of saying that by approaching, especially the scientific and mathematical things, historically, you can correct their bad understandings. I don't want to say they're bad I mean, in some ways, rather they're, they're good and healthy and no understanding is frequently, frequently no understanding is actually the perfect one. Um, but you can replace their worse understandings with clearer, better, truer understandings. I had a teacher once referred to the ancient Greeks as the three-year-olds of Western civilization, and uh, maybe maybe more maybe it would have been more appropriate to say five or eight-year-olds. But in, again, you know, what what is stuff made of? How does this work? What you know? Why? What is what is justice? You know, is is this too much? Too little? You know, like the the virtues? Is this extreme in the wrong direction or the right direction or what? Um, and it, and what's fun too about specifically like Democritus is like. He was right, and I don't want to say like by accident, because he, he he deduced his way to like you know the way reality close close enough to how it actually is. But you know, like you, you can ask a kid instead of just telling them again, like you know, stuff is made of atoms. There are like a hundred different kinds of atoms, whatever. You know, like uh, you, you could you could just say, hey, I've got this this piece of pencil lead. Like, what happens if I cut it in half? Well, I get a smaller piece. What if I what if I keep doing that forever? How far can I go? And and then at some point, like the actual answer is you can't cut an, a, a, a lead. I know that, you know, graphite and pencil lead isn't made of lead, but let's pretend it is for the sake of my bad argument or my bad analogy. You, you can't cut lead in, a lead atom in half and have lead afterwards, right? Yeah. And, and, well, what, and once you have that of- understanding, it, you, like, you, you're like, oh, there is a, like a smallest unit of stuff, you know? Well, even like if you continued on, right? So you know, there are carbon atoms. Like you can you can cut a carbon and you can cut a carbon atom in half, and you get a. I, I hope I'm going to get this right out. The two lithium atoms, roughly. I've never actually thought about doing this. Um, I haven't right, seen like, a periodic okay, table in a long time. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, but then you uh, you cut those in half, and what do you get? Like, and if you were if you were a god, like this is a question that I asked students recently. Like, okay, like cut a piece of paper, tear a piece of paper in half. You know, I had them like count the number of times that they could personally do that for. Yeah, Fifteen is pretty good. Um, I can't do it. I can do like twelve. Um, but uh, like, okay, like if you were a god, how how many times 
could you tear it in half? And uh, you can go down to, you know, like subatomic things, but like, is there an actual end to this? Another kind of role-playing thing that can like really provoke a profound question in a little kid and prepare the way for a lot of exciting learning that's going to come later on in life for them. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and I think that's, that's a, uh... That's a fun exercise too to ha- to have them kind of think about that, and it's I just think it's useful at some point to to realize that at, at after a certain point you're not working with paper anymore, right? Yeah, uh, like it, two two smaller pieces of paper are the same thing as one big piece of paper, but two atoms of lithium are drastically different from one atom of carbon. And it's an interesting idea that by cutting a thing in half, you get two completely different things that are nothing like their originator. You know, in working on this lesson with kids made me realize, what is the smallest amount of paper that you can have? It's not actually clear to me that I know the answer to that question. Oh, because what makes it paper? Like once it's not usable for writing on, is it even paper anymore? Is it just a splinter of pulp? It feels wrong to me to say that it is like that there are paper molecules, right? Because paper is made from wood and made from cells. So maybe like a cell is the smallest amount of paper that you can have. Paper is a category. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, it's a bad yeah, we can use it as a category if we want, but maybe we're pressing the category of paper too far when we do that. I mean, we're certainly pushing we're pressing the category of carbon too far if we if we're working with lithium, right? Uh, <laughs> yes. we, well, I mean, I mean yeah, that is like the cool thing is, is you know, you, you you cut a bunch of carbon in half, and then you get a bunch of lithium and put all that together. You don't get carbon after. You get a bunch yeah. of lithium. No. Um one of the fun yeah, no, things it's, from it's, me, sorry. Like, go for it. Oh, no, go, oh, for, it. go for it. I was going to I was going to just tangentially relate to the fact that when you were when you were summarizing how he talks about what adolescents or I guess uh, middle middle schoolers like um I you know, like uh e- extremes and uh you know gossip heroes idealism and I'm going through that list I'm like shoot check 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 you know I had a I also had a favorite tree as a child and uh I think Ooh. I could still climb it today if it's still up um I I had Guinness book of world records that I probably got around that age in middle school at at least one year's worth. And that's when I fell in love with superheroes, you know, because you know, heroes are, uh, superheroes are, are, you know, the, the good ones. They're, they're us. They just have, you know, one extra ingredient that lets them do things we can't, but like we could still relate to them, you know? And it's like, it, it, it paints the, it, it, this is less science and more into like maybe social science or something, but it's like, you know, w- w- it may, maybe, maybe more like, moral philosophy but like what, what what is the right thing to do well if if i can do this then i should be doing you know it, it i don't know it, the 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 whole hero thing lands really well for me i guess um well but i, I just i i oh go ahead taking that and then also going back to the book review which i know that you guys want to do i'm happy to talk science um uh is one of the one of the things that i argued, well, I don't even, arguing is too strong, that I raised in the, near the end of the book review is that Egan, maybe, it feels to me like Egan weirdly well paints the backstory of all of the rationalists that I know <laughs> that that like he's like point by point nailing a lot of uh, the stories of how we developed intellectually in a way that like did not actually fit particularly well with school. And one of the really good comments that was on that uh, uh, was that yeah, like you got to be really careful. You're not just tea leaf reading. <laughs> that you're not just giving a horoscope um, uh, in, in in this situation. You could describe anything and a bunch of rationalists would say, my God, my God, that totally describes my story. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm curious, Eniash, uh, 
did, mm-hmm. to what extent do you see the sort of like this is what should happen as describing your own development that did happen? Well, actually, um, we. So this is skipping a little bit ahead. So I want to step back a little bit and talk about the philosophic part first, because sure. I am going through a thing right now. In particular, uh, I have been more deeply exposed to the post-rationalist community recently and trying to make sense of it. And uh, and I have a lot to say about that slightly later in this episode. But... Uh, but I think that it makes you make a very good point that the philosophic, the third stage that uh, you get to once you get into high school, feels like basically what you are doing when you first discover rationality and start incorporating it into your being. It's the, as you said, like, or as is written in your view here, that it is trying to map the major features of the world and organize them and make them make sense with grids and systematizing. You are start asking really simple, basic questions like what is stuff? Uh, what is society? Uh, and then you're trying to find general principles, like what is the one equation that can wrap up all of physics, that kind of thing. Like simple things that uh, tie things together that are the underlying root causes of things that make all of this congeal into a single, I I don't want to say clockwork, but a single sort of understandable thing. And uh, I think that this is very much what we try to do as we move away from the mythic and romantic and start really trying to systematize and see all the different patterns and connections between things and how those can be understood and manipulated and make us stronger as we gain understanding of those. Uh, And that this is what you call it is when you try to think about how high school should be structured, you think about what brings intellectuals joy. And these are all the things that intellectuals love, the smaller, simpler questions that somehow manage to capture absolutely everything above them in a fractal reflection and recapitulation of all the complexity. Is that correct? That sounds great. Did I write a lot of that? I mean, I, I wasn't reading it word for word, but that's yeah, what I got no, out of it. No, that, was, that was fantastic. Yeah. That, never <laughs> <Okay>. better said. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, I, in that case, yes, I do think that is very much the rationalist experience. And that is what a lot of us get when we first find Less Wrong or we first find uh, Slate Star Codex, now Astral Codex 10, this crystallization of things into their deeper essences, which explain things on a more fundamental level that gives rise to all the complexity above. And it's it's fucking intoxicating. Well, what I wonder is to what extent... I guess I'm coming at this from the perspective of um, how educational philosophy or educational psychology usually works, which is to say, children are natural scientists, and we just they just need to be given these tools of rationality, and then they will. And it's like, yeah, maybe some kids. Um, but I feel like a lot of us go through these very irrational, right, m- mythic, romantic um, uh, sort of things where we pile up mm-hmm. so much knowledge through these other tools, and then like we just we're overwhelmed with it and then mm-hmm. we come up with these ways that every these theories and whatever right we start asking these simple questions and everything will just start to click like that does that oh i'm sorry no i was going to ask that question but you said you wanted to come back to that later yes you have just done a fantastic job of painting the story of the uh of philosophic thinking perfect yes I like that you point out in this teaching that we should also teach conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories are another way of 
addressing these things and explaining them and reducing them to something simpler, but that are wrong. And that it is good, uh, like people are like, teach conspiracy theories, how could you? But in fact, that it is uh, good to teach these things because everybody should have the experience of trying to reduce something to one of these simpler, more more organizing principles, but having been wrong about it and then finding that out. Meta note on that really quick is one of the things that made reading this so riveting and engaging. And I I encourage anyone listening to this who's on the fence because it's it's a dauntingly long read. Just just pick it up and try because one of the things that you do that I love is you'll you'll periodically pause and do like Q and A. Uh, and, and so like, you know, I said, you know, people will be like, what do you mean teach conspiracy theories? That's one of the things that made this so fun because you know, what's going on in our heads and <laughs> you're, you're like, well, hold on. What about this? And then it, you're like, well, let me, let me, let me touch base on that. Then we can get back to this. So anyway, back, back to what you were saying. I have a, I had a secret way of doing that, um, that if you want to ask about it, I, I, I have advice to give for anybody who wants to win uh, future ACX <laughs> book review contest, but that's a, that's a separate topic. Um, um, conspiracy theories. You know what? We should yeah. take your advice and put it as a patron-only content. So if anybody wants to win a future ACX contest, ah! they have to pay us money. Is it is it okay? <laughs> I, I have it planned lightly for some point in the future to write a blog, a Substack post about this. Is it okay that I also do that some number of months from now? Dude, it's your idea. You can do whatever you want with right. it. Don't want to trample on your on your IP. I think legally, everything <laughs> that I'm saying right now belongs to the two of you now. Um, Dude, fuck the police. <laughs> <laughs> um, the um, conspiracy theories. Um, <clears throat> my apologies. I'm getting over a flu right now. Um, uh, I mean, over government implanted 5G chips in my skin. Um, no, yes. but I'm uh, I'm carrying out a correspondence right now with Mark Sargent. Do either of you guys know Mark Sargent? Uh, he's he's a flat earther. He's maybe oh. the most well known flat earther. Um, I watched uh, a really great documentary called Behind the Curve, which is on just the flat earth oh. phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So good, so highly recommended. Um, and he's he in just- that one. Yeah, yeah, he's like the star of it. Um, and he just came across to me at least, right? Like I, I say this as a person who like got like my my most important scientific education as a child was in young earth creationism. Um mm. uh not that that's right, it's really quite wrong. Um, but because I like got into it in middle school and then got out of it in high school and like worked through those those systems and um really like learned I can be wrong. <laughs> um, I can be profoundly wrong about something that I thought was very important, but also that like there is there is something like I can touch reality. <laughs> I can touch reality through arguments, like listening to the best that both sides have to offer and understanding over time that one entire side can be totally full of crap. And at one point, Scott Alexander wrote something really important, which is that like the atheist or skeptic community has overtrained on young earth, on defeating young earth creationism because it made mm-hmm. them think that um, most uh, controversial topics are, you know, one side is like literally a million times wrong, <laughs> right? Like yeah. either the earth is like six, about 6,000 years old, or it's about 6 billion years old, right? That's a, that's a factor of a million <laughs> between there. It's really difficult to be more wrong about that one way or the <laughs> one way or the other. Um, and ditto flat earth, but like, it's so 
fun now to be like engaging with flat earthers and recognizing that what you are doing is like you are falling in love with the very beginnings of rationalist reasoning. Like you, mm. you are finding there are these things called arguments and you can deploy them. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, like these are like the inchoate, like just beginning forms of, of philosophic reasoning. So I love, uh, conspiracy, like nice, kind conspiracy theory minded people because they, I don't know, I see them as like my heroes. <laughs> like they are taking seriously um, the idea that maybe we're fundamentally wrong about the world and maybe we can figure out what is true about it in ways that everybody else just rolls their eyes at. They're wrong, right? They're wrong, 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 wrong. But um, they're really enjoyable to engage with. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I, I like that you have a more, um, I guess, uh, positive exposure than I do. I think more often than not, oh. I find it frustrating, but I think, I think it's because I, t I tend to, t I mean, there's there, maybe in 50 years, it'll be funny, but like, you know, the conspiracy theories around whatever COVID and the vaccine yeah. and stuff, th those weren't fun while they were going on, but yeah. it is kind of fun seeing how people, um, manage to find a way to believe that like the moon landing was faked or something. Right. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's an, I, I think what the difference is like that, that's a totally innocuous conspiracy theory. Like nothing, nothing hangs on that. Um, maybe other than like a dist distrust in government or something, but there's no real, like whatever, uh, terrestrial consequences. Right. Uh, so, but yeah, it, it it's interesting that you, one, one person can look at all this evidence and see, ah, but see, that's just more evidence for this other thing that I'm trying to explain to you. Right. Uh, I think the flat earther is actually a great example because, you know, like I, I haven't seen the documentary nor engaged with many flat earthers, but, uh, I don't think that they take, you know, um, whatever the view from an airplane, you know, where you can see some, some measure of the curvature of the earth or something. They don't, they don't take that as evidence for the flat earth. They, they have to kind of incorporate that into it. I guess there's different kinds of conspiracies, right? Uh, well, it's, you know, it, it's really interesting to me how like what is a conspiracy theory blends seamlessly. This may be wrong. This may be wrong. I think though it blends seamlessly into regular science <laughs> and everything, uh, regular like academic understandings of everything. Um, one of the things that I okay, I'm going to make a point. At, like I'll make this a good point, and then I'll make it an interesting point. Also, um, I think that one of the implications of no, I know that because Egan writes about this. That one of the implications of Egan's ideas about philosophic thinking, which is like the modern academic thinking that he thinks should really be kind of present every everywhere at all ages, but really come into its own, like in high school, second half of high school, especially college, um, is that in order to do it, you need to have different ideas battling it out. You you mm. can't do it without that. <laughs> um, this is, uh, right, like the philosopher and provocateur Peter Boghossian um, writes um, movingly of um, the uh, ancient Athenian virtue of parhesia, as I've, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, of, of frankness, of open speech. And um, it is good in the marketplace when you have a marketplace of ideas, um, because that is the only way that you can figure out things. Um, and you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to really carefully avoid all political things on all sides <laughs> here. Um, you guys can feel free to say what you want. Um, but, uh, but like it is more and more difficult on both sides in the contemporary politicals, um, uh, world to have that kind of open conversations. And I love how Egan says 
fine, like you can in your in your schools, <laughs> you can close off conversations to the people who you know you know in your heart to be right. It's just that you won't be able to call it education anymore. At least you won't be able to call it philosophic academic education because that is what that is. <laughs> uh, um, and then the fun aspect of this is that um, when I was um, you know, okay, so, so I had this uh, this situation where I had to like start off the whole like six years of uh, of the science curriculum um, a few months ago. So I spent a long time thinking like, what is like the one most important point to hit in the very first lesson, you know, because probably more people will ever will view that lesson than any other lesson in the future. And I thought, okay, I think it's the question of like, how does the scientific method work? And everybody, you know, has like their oh, it's a hypothesis and blah 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 blah. No. No, that doesn't work. No, that's not, that's not what the, that's not actually like what the historical scientific method is because like ancient Greece had that. Ancient Rome had all of that stuff. Um, the ancient, uh, the, 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 um, not ancient, the, uh, the Arab, um, uh, uh, the, gold, the golden age of uh, the, the Muslim golden age had that in the early modern period had that before the scientific revolution really broke out. What the scientific revolution adds in that nobody else had was a total commitment to continuing arguments with people who you knew were wrong. <laughs> it said that mm. one argument is never going to be a defeater. You are only anyone who says, right, like checkmate atheists, checkmate theists, right? Like you are wrong <laughs> that you have to stay in the conversation. Um, so I, um, I like my other, like wearing one of my other hats, uh, right? Like local, I live in Rochester, Minnesota. And one of the things that I've started recently, we're having another one tomorrow is a twice a month, um, argument conversation, drinking, eating club <laughs> of, uh, of people who are ideologically religiously, philosophically, very diverse from each other, where we just steer into, we pick a topic, we steer into what are the things, what are the questions that we really disagree most about? And then how do we have really wonderful conversations where we try to get to the bottom of how we are each seeing these things differently? Um, and like, that is part of what I hope to bring into as I, as I write about what an Egan education can be. Um, uh, uh, oh, on my Substack, I think I'm supposed to plug my Substack. Is that a thing that podcast guests are are supposed Absolutely. to? Absolutely, yeah, yes. Very good. Very good. Uh, the lost tools of learning. It's, a, it's a, that is my that is my Substack. Losttools.substack.com. Is that is that how Substack addresses work? If that's how they work, that's how this one works. It is, um, and I have okay. it open right now. That is what it is. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much check, for checking. Check the show notes, um, everybody. What uh, one that of the too. things that I hope to uh, bring into this is like, what are like the methods that work really well for getting people who otherwise would hate one another to have productive intellectual conversations um, across divides um, that are more useful even um, than ones they could have with people on their side. Hmm. All right, I I need to read more of your Substack because I have not gotten to that. Hey, yeah, can I just jump in right now and say that I need to read more of yours, Eniash? I didn't know. Okay, from like I don't know, almost a year of listening a lot to this podcast. Maybe I just missed, missed the key ones. I did not know that you had a Substack until I was Google snooping you yesterday. <laughs> it is very, very good. I was thinking, I wish I could write as well as you write. You are lucid. You are to the point. You, you are interested. You're fascinating to read also i like the fiction huh. of yours that i've read too a hundred words everyone everyone look up inyash's inyash brodsky 
a hundred words. That's a 600 word short story. It is very enjoyable. Reminded me of the parts of Unsung that I've been enjoying the most. Um, oh my gosh. Wow. Did you actually, were you inspired by Unsung? By Scott Alexander's uh, story? I, not for that particular story. I, I've read Unsung, but um, that, that story was its own thing. Weird Kabbalistic ish angels and American presidents, I think, is the uh, is the, <laughs> the, the, the content overlap there. Um, no, sorry, I, I have now. Sorry, I did not subscribe uh, to your Substack yesterday because I thought <laughs> it would just look like I was like uh, just like grubbing for I don't know. It just it felt really bad to me. But I will be subscribing to your Substack today. Well, shit. Thank you. I'm very flattered to everybody. hear that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's uh, what's the URL for it? Death is bad. Death at is bad. Com. Yeah. 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 Show notes, everybody. Look at the show notes. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was the 100 words? Uh, was that? 100. All I'm getting is it, Red it, Legacy when I Google that. Uh, it appears in Red Legacy, uh, I believe. Hold on a second. I'm clicking on the My Fiction page here. Scroll down. 100 words. It is available at. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's available at Curious Fictions and at Archive of Our Own. Okay, cool. And at Evil Girlfriend Media. I wonder if either of those are still alive. Evil Girlfriend Media is gone now. Curious Fictions is gone now. But Archive of Our Own is still there. So you can get it there or as part of the print collection of short stories I put out. Awesome. Uh, Recommended. Yeah, I mean, if my if my winnership of the uh, ACX Book Review Contest, uh, if I can actually use that for a second, the winner of the ACX 2023 Book Review Contest recommends officially Ines Brodsky's uh, <laughs> science fiction short stories. But the, thank you, guys, deeply. <laughs> and yeah, one hundred words is literally six hundred and five words. So uh, feel free to to read it if uh, if you just want a short little taste of something. Well, for for the one word he left out when summarizing Enosh's writing, fiction and otherwise, is uh, the emotional grip that often comes through. Right? All right, all right, guys. That, that, that's enough about me. We're we're here for uh, we're here. <laughs> all right, to talk we'll, we'll get off. We'll get off your back. Tell tell us about uh, Egan's view of the role of comedy in education. Oh man, I'm I'm writing that. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge fan of comedy, and I think that it. I'm glad that it seems like he. I wonder if he and I share the same appreciation of it, or if his is different. Because for me, it combines good storytelling. You know, like good pacing, callbacks, etc. It, you know, original observation, wit, and often provokes like thoughtful consideration. You know, like some some of the best comedy sketches aren't the ones that leave, you know, some of the best ones, you know, leave me laughing in tears, but others leave me wondering and uh, thinking this is presented in a way I hadn't thought about. And uh, I'm thinking like uh, Josh Johnson is a comic. You can find a million of his videos on YouTube. He does that a lot. Um, but and like, you know, storytelling. Uh, best one I got to think of is uh, one of the more recent specials by Mike Perbiglia. It's like an hour. It seems like he's rambling the whole time. Like he's just picking it up off the top of his head, but he's not. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a really long narrative about, you know, stuff that's happened, you know, com- the stuff that comedians talk about, but uh, he, he tells it like, like what I have to imagine some of the best, you know, campfire orators were like, you know, a, a thousand years ago, you know? Um, so, so I'll get off my, my comedy hobby horse and I want to hear about yours and Egan's. I'm um, writing 
Can I just reset the expectations for this? I feel like the last few questions I have just monologued <laughs> for way the heck too long. So let me just like speak in like smaller chunks for, and then like feel free to because like there's actually so much to say about humor and I've been thinking a lot about it, it recently in regards to education. Um, on my Substack, I did a post a few weeks ago, um, just like trying to do an Egan premortem, right? Imagining like at some point in the future, some person or persons like gets to gin up an actual like let's try this out Egan school, and then we find out it all went terribly terribly wrong like what the heck could have caused that to happen um and um uh and one of the pieces of feedback that i got was somebody saying like yeah like you spent too much time on the funnies <laughs> like humor is great humor is wonderful but like you ruin it by bringing it into school or into education it's not funny anymore you're wasting if it is funny you're wasting time because it's not really content wise and like i feel like oh man like i could not disagree more profoundly <laughs> with this. And so I've been thinking a lot about exactly what that looks like. Um, one of my, this, so, isn't, this I, isn't comedy, yeah. comedy uh, exactly, but one of my best uh, high school teachers, um, my chemistry professor, he, he, uh, he talked about how every, every discovery in the history of science started by someone saying, well, that's funny. Uh, yeah. why, why is that happening? What, you know, why did yeah. this do that? Um, and it, it's not exactly ha ha funny, but it's like, huh, that's a surprise. That's an anyway. Arthur C. Clarke quote. I only know that, or maybe it's an Asimov one. I only know that because uh, my science advisor at Science is Weird uh, recently told me that. Um, uh, Mr. Waterman, you've ripped off Asimov, or you ripped <laughs> off uh, Clark without, without telling us. And now you know the rest of the story. Um, <laughs> a throwback. Um, I, okay, so there's, a, I think, at least two sides to this. One of them is that look like the world is really funny. <laughs> like, you know, one of the, the theories as to what makes something funny in the first place is, um, uh, what's the word for it? Incongruity. Um, when you see things that two things that don't fit together and, and that is like the genesis of things being gut wrenchingly hilarious. If you, if and, you and set it, it up, it's the, right. it's the usurping of expectations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Like, a. Yeah. Uh, Dimitri Martin does a lot of like two line jokes, and one of them he's like, "I've gotten really into people watching lately, mostly just this one woman." <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it's you know it's, it's it's the setting up of an expectation and having that violated, which is in a way the scientific process. There's um there's there's another element to this, which is um another way that we can bring humor into this just naturally, and it helps focus students, and it leads to really sorts of all sorts of really wonderful things, is by examining like jokes and examining just like things that are funny. I run a course right now. I feel like some large part of my childhood was just spent reading Calvin and Hobbes again and again and again and again to the point that I basically had them all memorized. Um, and, uh, and, and still I find, uh, as an adult, I'll go back and, and realize all of a sudden, like, oh, I didn't actually understand what that strip meant. Now I do. Oh. <laughs> um, oh. and so I do, I do this class, um, that really just takes Egan's idea of you can find good literature and good literature doesn't need to, to be novels. It can be like songs. It can be short poems and it can be jokes. Uh, Calvin and Hobbes is kind of all of those sometimes. Um, and uh, so we read Calvin and Hobbes together in the class. And you know, you can learn a lot of vocabulary, a lot of SAT level vocabulary by doing Calvin and Hobbes. But um uh but like also like we'll just say frequently like what makes 
this joke funny. Like I'll have the kids like point, like call attention to the strips that they most want to talk about, the ones they thought were funniest or they thought were weirdest that they don't understand. And then we'll talk about like what the heck is going on here. Now there's a point, there's an aspect of this which is like what is actually going on like between panel three and panel four. It's not stated. And actually, frequently the kids don't get it at all, and we have to kind of then like figure out, kind of like tease it out. Sometimes there's like different interpretations as to what's going on <laughs> in this, um, and sometimes it's just like theory of humor wise, right? Like Aristotle thought that um, all humor is based on superiority. You're laughing at somebody because you think that they are lesser than you. Um, uh, Freud thought everything was sex, but uh, right then there's the incongruity theory that we talked about before, and then there's the relief theory. Maybe Freud also thought the relief theory, right? That like you're scared and then you're like, oh, it's, it's all okay. And then, and so like we, I had the kids like take different theories as to what makes something funny and like try to argue, try to, try to explain like what makes this strip so funny to all of us from that perspective. There's a lot of like careful literary theory you can do when you take humor seriously and not a moment before. And then the other element of um, uh, that Egan talks about with humor is no, hold on, that's actually so big that let me just like stand back for a second. Any any responses to that? No, no, keep going. People have this expectation that school isn't supposed to be funny, you know, yeah, like and like that ends up blinding us to yeah, absolutely infuriating. Yeah, the world is funny. Funny is funny. Funny is good. I mean, yeah, I try to put funny in everything that I do in life when possible. <laughs> It's just a better except way to live. School. Except for school. I mean, and everyone would make the exception to say like, oh, like if a teacher is a funny person, yes, it can be useful to be funny to get a class's attention. But you know, no, nobody else, I think probably somebody out there is looking at like, like how can we take the humor implicit in our encounter with the world and, uh, and really tweak that out for all it's worth? I mean, those people are just, I, I don't want to say bad and wrong, but they're bad and they're wrong. I think <laughs> humor humor should even be incorporated into religious ritual. I think it's an important part of everything. Ineash, you're former Jehovah's Witness, is that right? Yes. I saw like one little mention of that on one of your Substack posts, and I thought, my goodness, I would love to. I, mean, I say this is a former evangelical sort of borderline fundamentalist at different points. Is there? You don't need to talk mm-hmm. about that right now, but like, is there a place where you talk about this? I I don't know. I'm sure I've mentioned like in passing in various places. I don't know if I've ever really gotten deep into it. I could at some point. Honestly, I, I legit think we need to have you back for a second episode because I'm not sure how much longer we can go and there's still so much I want to talk about. But um I I don't I don't think there's a a a deep dive into that anywhere. No, why? I just I mean, you literally have a really fantastic blog post on how that time you almost joined a cult, but you oh, don't yeah. have, you, but like the find that you haven't written about like that time you left an actual honest to goodness, everyone in the world agrees it's a cult cult uh, is, is amazing <laughs> to, to me. My, like my background is, uh, is that I look back on my evangelical quasi fundamentalist Christian upbringing as almost wholly wonderful which i know is a really rare thing and i um and i'm interested to know uh, what to what extent yours was too steven are you formerly religious in any way not in any um serious way you know like my my parents don't know the distinction between belief and belief and belief um i was raised in a vaguely christian household you know i i accepted the existence of god the same way i accepted the existence of japan like 
It's in this book. You say it's real. I'll take your word for it. Um, oh, but it doesn't have any practical impact on your life, really. Well, there, there actually was some weeks or months in my, I, I'd be off by three years if I guessed an age, somewhere 11 plus or minus three years, um, where I was terrified I was going to go to hell for blasphemy or something. So at some points it had, it had an impact, but uh, it, it wasn't like a serious... Um, no, it, I I wasn't raised. You know, we we never did. We never prayed around the house. Certainly wasn't in a you know the the um, uh, fundamentalist household or anything like that. Yeah. Eniash, I know that you had said that you wanted to talk about post rationalism, and it occurs to me that that I might do. be like if you want to have me back, like talking about post rationalism and like religion, or maybe just maybe they're just two separate things. But I would love to if I come back. I would love to like talk with to, to, to get to hear if you want me to interview I, interview you i would be happy to do that even uh to hear your religious story and like how that relates to your being your development as a rationalist whether that's just wholly negative or whether they're positive elements or whatever with that oh yeah i i would love to uh, jehovah's witnesses were very big on the philosophic but um that yeah maybe maybe we should save that for the actual episode yeah because yeah. i do want to get into the post-rationalist thing here. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and dive into it. The So you you had the various kinds of understanding and the stages that people go through as they get a, no- a lot of knowledge and then try to organize that knowledge and then try to simplify and find underlying themes and structures in that knowledge. Uh, and that is, that is where everybody basically starts as a rationalist and starts applying these tools and making themselves much more powerful. Uh, but... A lot recently, I've been talking with people who are into the post-rationalism, and I don't like the term post-rationalism because to me, it feels like this is just the later stage of rationalism. Like As you get through rationalism and get all that philosophic understanding deeply ingrained, uh, you come come to the, the later stage where you understand its limitations and where where you need to loop in previous methods of thinking to to shore it up. I believe, what was it you said here? Okay, here, uh, this is a quote from the, your, your review. Philosophic understanding is obsessed with things making sense. Ironic understanding says, reality is always a few steps beyond you. Chesterton's fence is a rationalist shorthand for the idea that we should expect the world to be more complex than our models. And uh, I just threw the term ironic understanding in here. I should have first said that... Uh, it is the final stage, the final form of Egon's kinds of understanding, which uh, kind of transcends and unifies all the previous forms of understanding, uh, where it's a sense of taking all those other things together and realizing that they're all important and that you can't just have the philosophic that you lean on for everything. There's a lot of important tools from the mythic ways of understanding life and the romantic ways of organizing knowledge and ideals. And all these need to be tied together. Uh, and I, I, that just, that feels to me a lot like what this argument about post-rationality is about. I feel like most of the people who've been in rationalism for many years come to this place and they don't necessarily think of themselves as post-rationalists. Some do, some don't. But I think one of the major beefs we have is with people who say they are post-rationalist, but they are people who are entirely into the mythic or maybe some mythic and romantic, but never went through the philosophic at all. And they're like, Uh, look, these are the tools you need to use to synthesize everything. And some of us on the other side are like, 
yes, we understand that, but also you need the philosophic and you need all these together. You can't just lean entirely on the mythic and the romantic and say that you're a post-rationalist because you're not post, you're pre. You got to get yeah, through yeah, the yeah. philosophic and rationalist to get to the, the post part, or as I would think of it, just like the latter stages of rationalism. I don't know. Um, I think what is your thoughts about the ironic knowledge? And Stephen, go ahead. I just want to say, I think that maps nicely onto the kind of stages of the kinds of understanding, you know, chart or uh, I don't know what you call them pictures in your mm-hmm. book review, you know, elementary, they like stories, binaries, metaphors, jokes, middle, middle school, extremes, gossip, heroes, high school was, uh, you know, um, uh, general schemas, schemes and uh, certainty and stuff like that. Then I think you've got rationality, rationality, then you've got post-rationality, you know, like I think that that actually maps pretty well. I I was kicking myself after I hit the submit button at four thirty in the morning when I uh, when I uploaded um, the book review um, that I had not mentioned post rationalism because um, it just seemed like unless I did and I'm just making up this memory it's a memory I've had for a while but it might be wrong too. <laughs> I don't recall seeing the word post-rationalism in your po- post, although like you talked about the multi-tentacled uh, transdimensional octopus, which <laughs> very much feels like a, a thing uh, out of that idea set. You talk about some, some uh, intellectuals you know, rever- is succumbing to nihilism or worse still to snarky, close-smoking postmodernism. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't use post- post-rationalist. Um, I... Th- I after I after I submitted that I really became aware of like how big this post rationalist conversation was becoming. I think before that I read the piece in the New Atlantis or whatever um, mm. on, on post rationalism, which I really enjoyed. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, it just seemed like so clearly the rationalist community is recognizing the limits of rationality, and I'm like I'm so much a rationalist, right? Like my even like my I'm not a post rationalist. I want to be. <laughs> um, they seem cool also <laughs> they seem like the cool kids um but uh uh but intellectually i can recognize that no like the world was not made for me uh like what did yukowski say about um photons right like we we think that or quantum uh, quantum states right like we think that uh that electrons or photons are weird because they you know whatever quantum quantum indeterminacy things no like shut up a photon is is perfectly natural. <laughs> Your mind mm-hmm. is weird. It did not evolve to understand this at all. Um, and the things to get more post rationalist about it, the things that your mind did evolve to do, which you know are things like stories and metaphors and rituals and and things, right? Um, that Egan mm-hmm. never talks about rituals. Um, I think that'd be too. I think he would be worried that that'd be too weird. Although I imagine he thought a lot about it and never wrote about it. Um, uh, like those are the human ways of understanding things for us humans. They're not ways that a horse would come up with. They're not ways that an alien civilization might we might find that they share with us. But like they are the human ways. And um, yeah, Egan I think really throws the door open for post rationality. Yeah, and he he calls it the uh, ironist level of thinking, ironic thinking, which I think is the. It's, it's bad. I don't like that term either. Yeah. <laughs> I worry that we're stuck with it, but if anyone has a better, I've recently heard about from a good friend of mine um, who is part of the um, meta modern, meta modernity. Are you guys familiar with this movement, this community? Mm-mm. This is a what group is of it? people. That, 
there's a po- well, there's a podcast called the, I think it's called the, the Sci Fi Podcast, which is maybe one of the centers of uh, of this conversation, which is looking at less from a personal and epistemological question, but more from a how should society work, right? Like, so we went through these periods where it's obvious that like what we should do is just like choose the person to rule us who God has chosen. Obviously, It'd be stupid to do the opposite of that. Um, and then we went through this, you know, like well, the rational way of structuring a society is by democracy and whatever. Um, and like through good policy choices, I'm not anti-democratic. Um, I'm really quite pro-democratic. Um, but, uh, through good policy and wonky discussions about whatever. And, um, you know, maybe though, like the, and, and through higher technology, right? Um, uh, but maybe, um, maybe like the better ways of organizing the society are to bring back some of these earlier things. So there's a community of people who are looking at like specifically what can we learn from sci-fi literature about how we can imagine to make um, uh, better societies because sci-fi is our shared um, uh, our shared narrative now. Sorry, maybe that went in a real, really weird and wonky um, uh, uh, direction, especially about a community that I'm only beginning to understand. Um, but yeah, I think we see this sort of disquiet with um, the analytical tools of uh, rationalism and science and philosophy and whatever. We, 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 we sense, we see this, this disquiet bubbling up in a whole bunch of different ways. And I think that Egan can productively be brought into that. And that like the final vision of what we want to help children become, or at least right. Like those of us who are excited about this is not some sort of, <sighs> dweeb who, you know, like thinks that like computers will necessarily save us and rationality will save us, but a post dweeb who has been a dweeb, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe <laughs> this is maybe the worst possible branding. Uh, and, uh, but like then reconnects, um, with, uh, our, the other aspects of, uh, how we live, uh, in the world. Yeah. You pull in a lot of, sort of examples of how the ironic uh, style of thinking is important to make everything uh, tie together by saying that irony without the philosophic capabilities, without the rationalism, is impotent. It can't do anything. But philosophic understanding by itself can become anxious about like making every last piece of data fit into a general schema, and irony like lets the, lets the philosophic relax a bit. Uh, it gives it energy and life. Egan, and this is getting really like actually so much into the Egan weeds that I'm not sure that I can state him properly here. If I'm remembering correctly, thinks that there is like some kind of like, this seems so much like Marx, frankly, like, like Marx's different stages of human civilization. And he thinks that like mm-hmm. there's some sort of like, you know, there's this um, Hegelian dialectic that like, like there's this war between like the um, uh, the patricians and the plebeian class, right? In the, in the classical world, like that conflict is what like drives like the eventual, uh, annulsion, annulling of that dichotomy and brings us to this different binary. But Egan thinks that there are like these sort of like this, this pressure that's in each of these sorts of mindsets, these different kinds of understanding, these different toolkits. Um, and that like brings us into the next one. And the, the, I don't know if I believe in any of that, if any of that makes sense to me, except for, (laughs) um, in philosophic. Uh, in the modern rational one, where what you're doing is you're trying to make one system to rule them all. You're trying to make an ideology um, uh, that will answer all of the questions. And eventually you recognize that that, or at least you you die and you don't recognize <laughs> this. Uh, you die hopeful, um, or you recognize like no, it really seems that we're never going to come up with or th- th- this one this one method or this method 
does not and cannot exist. And you can either collapse in despair about that and, you know, um, a certain president uh, 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 in a certain sci-fi fictional universe um, that is only 605 words long, I believe does <laughs> collapse in terror about this. And then a certain other president um, uh, you know, says like, okay, like we have work to do. Let's get on with this. Um, and what Egan says, um, uh, Stephen, to go back to your point about humor before, is that the best reaction to all of that is just to laugh and to recognize like we may be these insignificant beings who did not evolve to do the work that we are setting out to do. And that's hilarious. <laughs> I think what really captured me with this and won me over to the side of ironic thinking a lot was the painting of Socrates as the first ironic thinker, the discoverer of this type of uh, mental stage and saying that he did laugh. He enjoyed life. He had a lightness to him. Even when he was about to drink the hemlock, he was still being joyful and and light and it says like the payoff of socrates irony is freedom from meta narratives and like the lightness the ability to float above the fights that others are embroiled in and engaging only where you want is beautiful to me it is i, I just I, yeah i think lightness and humor is insanely important to oh my be god human. i just i just feel like i i just had this okay tell me if this this, this seeming revel revelation actually explains some of politics, some of our current political moment. In America, the Republican Party is stuck in romantic thinking. Mm. And the Democratic Party is stuck in philosophic thinking. That could very well be. I don't I feel like have to think point, a lot more on it. I feel like I'm at this point in politics where I was just I kind of laugh at the idea that I could be able to, any kind of like political ideology could be able to solve all of our problems, right? And so what I do right. is like, I, I, I keep them like pets, uh, you know, in, in, inside of my mind, and I set them against one another, and I try to keep some sort of balance that seems wise to this. Um, and Egan, I, I, I feel like I'm being okay and going a little bit political right here, only because Egan, in educated mind, in a part that I didn't talk about, does actually do the same thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I feel like if if you want if we want to understand like why Egan's vision of where we want to help kids get to is useful, we can see the negative images <laughs> of some of that in the people around us who make us most frustrated. Yeah. Well, hold on a sec. I am checking the time. How much longer do you have here? Because I knew you I had to go soonish. I am so soon hungry right now. I am so yeah, hungry yeah. right now. So probably I, I should go. <laughs> I feel like we got to have you back if you if uh, if you have the bandwidth Absolutely. for it at some point. I we I love, I, I, I love this conversation, but we didn't talk about the the book review that, as much as I'd have liked to. But the point is, people you know people got a sense of your the the passion and the connections you can make to stuff. You know, so if. if if you like the conversation, you'll love the book review. Uh, and if you didn't like it, you'll like the book review. Um, so I, I, I recommend that. But yeah, I, just, I would still love to talk to you again if, if you're uh, if you're available. Yeah, I would absolutely, absolutely love to schedule a part yeah. two where we talk at the very least about the uh, Egonian charter school you went to, how Egon is the Joseph Henrik for education, uh, if <laughs> Egonization is eating the world, how writing makes us cyborgs. And uh, real quick before you go, uh, can you do the ACX writing advice in a few minutes, or is that for next episode? Oh, I, no, I can, I can, um, I can do that. Yeah, I can absolutely do that right now. This section contains patron content for Brandon's advice on for how to write an award-winning ASX book review. Back to the regular episode. Hey, All can right. I ask you guys a really quick question that I've been wondering about for like six months now since you guys did that thing on Eric Hole? Sure. sure. And this is not about his substance. Don't worry, it won't take any more time. 
you guys, I, I realized when I was listening to it that like you guys didn't know, at least you didn't evince any knowledge in that, that he was the guy who had just recently won the ACX book review contest. For me, correct. The, I did not the, know the, that. Yeah. Like for me, the like rationalism, like is, you know, Scott's blog and some other things. But mm-hmm. my sense is that that's not at all true for a lot of people in the rationalist movement. Am I right about that? I think. I think pretty much everyone in the rationalist movement knows of Eliezer and Scott because those are the two really big names who put out a lot of content. But I know a number of people who have not read like any of the sequences and who barely read Astral Codex 10, but get get it much more like um, like a cultural Christian knows the things in their religion. They don't go to church or if they do, it's just like Easter and Christmas, but you still know all the stories. You know about Adam and Eve, you know about Jesus, you know about the flood. And that's just because it's like, taken up from the wider culture from everyone else talking about it from references you see everywhere and i think that's how a lot of the modern day rationalists get a lot of their rational knowledge is through the wider osmosis of sharing ideas and sharing knowledge and sharing occasional really good blog posts here and there without like a deeper commitment to the entire rat sphere so where yeah, are the they? Like, are these, I... Is this in person in, in San Diego, or is this like? Sorry, sorry, Stephen, go for it. I apologize. Oh, I'm sorry. What, what was the question? Uh, like, do I read ASX and Less Wrong like a lot, or I, I think I hmm, got distracted or something? Um, uh, ACX, which is a telling little mistake right there. Uh, but, <laughs> what uh, did I say? ASX. <laughs> not ASX. Yeah. Um, uh, well, is it, is it, is it not this, it seems to not be the center of the rationalist community for you guys. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So sorry. I just want, I want to be, my, my, my cat's been in here making a fuss. Um, <laughs> so an adorable fuss, but it, it pulled my attention. So I missed the, the punchline of the question. Um, I guess, no, not really. The, the, the center of it is probably our local community and this podcast, oh, wow. um, which, you know, I, I, I realized I missed out on stuff. I knew Eric Hole had done something to get him, you know, on podcasts, but I didn't know who he was. I, I glanced at his web, I glimpsed at his website and stuff before we did that episode. Um, but I, I didn't know that he was an ASX reader. I didn't know that he had uh, certainly won a book book review contest. Um, I subscribe to the like whatever the weekly digest of like here's the good less wrong posts this week, or excuse me, the highest voted or the best or whatever. Um, but no, yeah. I, I certainly don't commit to reading everything. And I, uh, sorry, Scott Alexander, I don't read that many. I, I, I've read many of his posts, but I certainly didn't read anything like all of them because they're long and I'm a slow reader. So, uh, <laughs> and and a lot of them I can get via, you know, the the distillations I get from conversations with people. But some of them you, you just have to read, you know, meditations on Moloch, uh, categories made for the man, etc. Um, but yeah, that was so, my answer. I've, I've read every post of the sequences. I still try to, get the highest ranked um, posts on less wrong when I can. Oh, it's I also not read always. all the sequences. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read uh, all of Astral Codex religiously. Um, I, a lot, yeah, a lot of what I get is through, uh, through the Bayesian Conspiracy Discord, through Rationalist Twitter, uh, through just people that I know mentioning things. It's, there's just so much out there. It's hard to keep up. And like, honestly, I, I read all of the book reviews uh, for, you know, in all three seasons of it, but you don't know who it is writing at the time. And afterwards, 
there's a list of a number of names and honorable mentions and all that. And they all just kind of like go, they, they blur together. So I, I did not realize that he was the winner either. Uh, the, I mean, the other major name that I know of now is V because he became so central when COVID happened. And yeah. uh, now with his constant AI updates that uh, he's like, he's another one that I know by name. Um, I guess uh, Yasin, I really like and Ayla as well. Uh, both people that I, I know by name just because I'm so interested in the content that they do put out. Your guys' Ayla con- uh, interviews are really great. Oh, thank you. She's a yeah. fascinating person. To be fair, I've never heard a bad Ayla interview, but uh, I, I agree. I think that because uh, I, I wasn't on the one that with uh, Yasin and Ayla last uh, episode, and that was a lot of fun to listen to. They're both. Well, that's the Yasin. Yeah, that's in, my, that's in my up next, and I haven't listened to it yet. Oh, you're in for a treat. I bet. I bet. Here, I, I'm going to go because then we can all go. Goodbye. Yeah, uh, this, has been, right. this has been the high point of my week. Um, can we schedule uh, another? Uh, if, you, if, you, if you guys would like, uh, by all means, yes, absolutely. let's schedule another one. Likewise, and absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, this was great. And uh, I will chop the section for patrons where you uh, explain how to win ASX book review contests. So if anyone wants that, uh, <laughs> check, it us out, check us out on Patreon. Check out all the links in the show notes. Um, and uh, do, do read this book review. Uh, and now I learned it's in uh, audio form. So if you have three hours and uh, which I will today, actually, maybe it'll give me a chance to reread it because I'm going to hit the road and drive for 75 minutes both ways. Check out your book review, The Educated Mind by uh, Brandon Hendrickson. Thanks again for joining us, man. This was awesome. And also his blog, losttools.substack.com, where he continues to talk about education and uh, your it's not a YouTube channel. Science is weird. How does one what is the the media that that is conveyed through uh live lessons and recorded lessons that people can pay for so just go to sciencesweird.com the actually i have like zillions of things that i've written like i wrote the whole website and um there's a lot of nice piquant sort of provocative stuff on the website so i, I guess i recommend kicking it around there we will awesome. talk about that as well on our next podcast which we will schedule after we're done here yeah that sounds awesome <laughs> all right thanks guys thanks again mm-hmm. bye 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 Steven, welcome back. We're here for the second part of the show. Yo. I've decided to stop trying to estimate how many fractions of the show this is going to be. No problem, man. I feel like arguing that it has to be some percentage of a Bayesian conspiracy episode or it's not complete is just arguing by definition anyway. Yeah, that's a silly thing that we shouldn't do. Right. Perfect lead-in for the less wrong post because it is arguing by definition. I'll give it a medium lead-in. That wasn't my best work. But <laughs> I thought it was a really good lead in. Honestly, the, the worst part was that I uh, I didn't just roll with it immediately. I got here a chicken. I'm holding a chicken. It has two legs, no feathers. By the neck Therefore, or by the legs? Uh, by the legs. Most importantly, it's obviously by definition a human. Oh, why so? Is it because it is featherless? Right. And bipedal. When I look in the dictionary, that's all that that's all that there is. Well, in that case, uh, I'm afraid that you have to let that chicken go because it is in- unethical to hold a human <laughs> by the legs when he's not wearing clothes. People get mad when you do that with small humans. <laughs> yeah. I think the last few of these have kind of been the capstone posts of the human definition of language or human human use of words rather uh, sequence. Mm-hmm. But he he points out rather succinctly that when people argue over definitions, they usually start with some visible, known, or at least widely believed set of characteristics. Then they pull out a dictionary, and then they point out that these characteristics fit the definition, and they conclude, well, therefore, by definition, yada, 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 atheism or religion, right? Yeah. 
which is kind of besides the point because it's not the visible known and widely believed characteristics that are under question. Uh, as you were pointing out with the plucked chicken, uh, it would be like saying that uh, Socrates is bipedal and therefore he is vulnerable to hemlock. <laughs> and uh, if some of them were just to say that, like, what, what do you mean Socrates is bipedal? Like, obviously, that is not under question. Uh, and But the, they were saying, well, he's bipedal, and therefore, by definition, he's vulnerable to headlock, hemlock. Eliezer goes on to say that, you know, it, it doesn't even matter if the individual things you're talking about are bipedalism and featherlessness. Like, if, if you can legitimately see that Socrates is human-shaped, you can predict his vulnerability to hemlock because the universe contains empirical clusters of similar things. If he seems humanish, then the small things that put him into that category aren't really the things that matter. The fact is that he's in that category, and that is what you are guys are arguing about right now. Right. And th- this is the whole point of like, it, you know, it's a it's a reasonable probabilistic inference, right? Yeah. Um, we talked, I think it was last one, about if an uploaded person should be considered a human being or a person or whatever, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I was kind of okay sneaking in the connotation of human just because that gives it this magic property where people don't want to kill it. Um, yeah, or hold it upside down while it's naked. <laughs> exactly. But the thing is, I couldn't point to any of the usual things. I couldn't say, well, you know, it's got it's it's mostly hairless except for its head. It's got you know five fingers five, or whatever five fingers uh, on each of its two hands, etc. Because it doesn't have any of those, mm-hmm. right? Uh, mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. has other things that make it a person. Yeah, it's those other things that are the things that are under question, really, which is why arguing by definition is so pointless. Right. That's that's the thing. If we run into, a, you know, a new tribe of humans that's undiscovered or a new tribe of, mm-hmm. you know, feather, featherless bipeds, mm-hmm. uh, we can we can use our ordinary inferences that we use for ourselves and each other. But mm-hmm. pointing the, the point is pointing to a definition isn't the useful point isn't the useful thing there because we, we have to do we have to use a separate set of criterion for assessing whether or not an uploaded person is a human, right? Yeah. Eliezer points out that if you saw Socrates out in the field with some herbologists and they're preparing an antidote, uh, then you can actually debate whether or not he is vulnerable to hemlock. And if someone keeps insisting he's a human and humans by definition are mortal, then it's kind of like throwing out everything, all the special information you have about Socrates, except the fact that he's human. And insisting like the correct prediction is the one you would use if the only thing you knew about him was that he was human, which is very stupid. He says it's like insisting that a coin is 50% likely to be showing heads or tails because it's a fair coin, even after you've actually looked at the coin and see that it's showing heads. Right. As he as he puts that, I liked it. This is illegal under Bayesian probability. Yeah, you can't just keep one categorization and make estimates based on that while deliberately throwing out everything else you know. Right. Yeah, with the with this newfound tribe of humans, I suppose we could we could assume that they are humans and make all the inferences that we make about that normally. But if we find out a special thing about them that makes them immune to hemlock, that is something that we should not throw out just because they're humans. Yeah, whenever I think of you know arguing by definition, uh, it, dictionaries tend to agree, but not on everything. It's reminiscent to me of people like pointing to the Bible and be like, "See, this is the proof." But then you grab another version of the Bible and it says something different enough for there to be a substantial argument. You know, for example, the word uh, momentarily. Mm. Um, some people use it to mean for a moment or in a moment. Yes. And those are two different things. Uh, that's a good point. You know, it's like the, the example that uh, that George Carlin, the, the stand-up comedian, gave was because uh, the word for uh, in a moment is presently. Momentarily means for a moment. And the example he says is that mm. I will be there presently. And then after pausing momentarily, I'm going to kick you in the nuts. 
Awesome. That's how I always remember which one's which. Okay. I. Hmm. It never comes up in real life because it's it's not an important thing to debate. But if it was, I'd have yeah. a, I'd have a good uh, zinger for it. That's fantastic. I always remember the Superman does good, you do well distinction. Right. But it's just, <laughs> it, it seems so kind of like weird to have memorized that. I mean, I love that it's a pithy little proverb that's easy to memorize and now I have it in my head forever. But on the other hand, like, does it matter? Like everybody knows exactly what you mean when you're saying I do, I, I'm doing good or uh, I'll be there momentarily. Like, it, but why, why the pedan- pedantry there? I mean, like, I, I, uh, I bring this up because it's not entirely tangential because a lot of the times these arguments are totally pedantic, right? Mm-hmm. You know, is atheism religion? Like, if you need to squint at the dictionary to say so, who fucking cares, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, like another good example is, uh, you know, like, are vegetables healthy? No, they're dead. They're healthful, <laughs> right? I I guess. But like, I, that, that is really starting to get to my, that, that would annoy me though, if somebody was all constantly going on about that. So it, it's just one of those things where it's like, it doesn't matter right up until it does. Mm. And, you know, so if, if people are going to say, well, no, we've got, you know, a human is a, is a fertilized egg and sperm and that's all we care about. Well, then the second, you know, like if that's, if that's what's, you know, carved into the stone of the law, then the second we have M's, they're going to be non-human things that we can do whatever we want with. That, that's where the rubber meets the actual road here. Yeah, it seems that almost all the problems we have with definitions is when a law defines something in a certain way, which does not match the way things actually cluster in the world. I guess that's why definitions can matter, because laws are made out of words. Right. And uh, I, I think that's an astute point. I mean, that and like just um, social social decorum, social mandate. So it doesn't have, doesn't have to be legally inscribed. It can be socially accepted, Right. Mm, okay uh, yeah and, and th- th- those also have connotations you know again like um i don't know what the the legal definition is of nazi right mm-hmm. but if nazi is anyone who votes for the party that you don't vote for then that's a bad definition mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yeah certainly if we want to point out like what about those guys that worked for that guy hitler right <laughs> right there's there's a reason that like call of duty or whatever it was modern warfare like the the zombies games where you where you know you'd, you'd kill nazis there's mm-hmm. a reason that it was Nazi Nazi is not like Trump voters, right? Yeah. It'd be yeah. super fucked up if it was just people in MAGA hats, right? <laughs> yes, it would be. But because because it's Nazis who are, by definition, you know, worthless scum, uh, <laughs> yes. then, then it's totally okay. It's okay. Yeah. yeah. People like to sneak in the connotation there. Oh, interesting. But you, correct. Yeah. Uh, I like that this post ended on a zinger, which I thought was really fun. Mind if I read it out? No, no, please said you wouldn't feel the need to say Hinduism by definition is a religion because, well, of course Hinduism is a religion. It's not just a religion by definition. It's like an actual religion. (laughs) Atheism does not resemble the central members of the religion cluster. So if it wasn't for the fact that atheism is a religion by definition, you might go around thinking that atheism wasn't a religion. That's why you've got to crush all opposition by pointing out that atheism is a religion is true by definition, because it isn't true any other way. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, the last sentence here is another good uh, zinger here where he says that you're probably just better off deleting the phrase by definition from your vocabulary and always on any occasion where you might be tempted to say it in italics or followed with an exclamation mark. That's a bad idea by definition. (laughs) Well done. I I like being reminded that Eliezer is actually really funny. 
I yeah, the when he wrote the sequences, man, these were just amazing and pithy and good stuff. Yeah, I mean, laughing and learning at the same time is I think I think the best way to do it. I agree, which is a thing that we talked about earlier in this episode, I believe. But I don't know for sure because we're recording it tomorrow. I suspect we'll I I, I bet that'll come up. Well, uh, okay. should we, where, where do we draw the boundary between this this post and the next one? Let's draw the boundary right here and dive into the next one. Perfect. Where where to draw the boundary? In this post, I didn't I only pulled out a few things in here. The uh, primary thing about this post is that it's about, it, it points out that wondering how to define a word means that you're looking at the problem the wrong way. You're searching for the mysterious essence of what is, in fact, a communication signal. You shouldn't ever, like, have a word and then try to figure out how to define it. Define it. It's more about trying to figure out what things out there cluster naturally in thing space and summarize them, like have a handle that you can, you, a, a, a mental handle you can use to refer to those clusters of thing space rather than first being given a handle and trying to stick it into things. Yeah. Or stick I... it onto things. <laughs> That's got to stay in. Um, Damn it. <laughs> there's like, it, not not to backtrack, but the, the opening example is perfect because this is something that at various points everyone's tossed around or at least has heard argued. Like, what is art? Just because there's a word art, and this is me quoting Yudkowsky, doesn't mean that it has a meaning floating out there in the void, which you can discover by finding the right definition. It feels that way, but it is not so. I'm reminded of uh, 30 Rock with uh, Jack Donaghy and uh, Tina Fey. Without the preamble, he's like, we know what art is. It's paintings of horses, <laughs> which Ken would agree with, I think. I, I was about to say, sounds like a very Ken thing to say. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so this is more about, you know, arguing by definition. Like the, the point is there aren't, correct me if I'm summarizing too, if, I, if I'm if I'm summarizing unfairly here, but it's basically like there aren't, there aren't boundaries, right? Like mm-hmm. rather we make them, but they don't exist. They don't exist out there, right? This is just another way of driving home the point that like, what I think uh, Richard Dawkins pointed out that it's only like an evolutionary accident that like the more intermediary species between us and chimps aren't or us and our common ancestor with chimps aren't alive. Right. And, and if they were, we'd have to have like tests as to see who's human. This is like just the funny thing with evolution. Like where did the first bird come from? Well, like it's it's parents had to be birds, right? Well, yes, hmm. pretty much. Right. It's like the like there's no point in the line of evolution if you lined up every ancestor along the way as you're walking back where you could point to this one and the one next to it and say this one's a bird and that one's not. Yeah. It's it's it has to be arbitrary. And that's interesting, but also drawing a specific line is arbitrary and yet things do cluster in thing space. Like you can notice the difference between a velociraptor and a a uh, red falcon. Right. Like one of them can fly and the other one can't and that is that is a thing that is very important about them. Yeah, at some point as you're walking by the line of ancestors from chick from from falcons to dinosaurs, you'll notice, oh, you know, this is different enough from the ones up there. I'm going to go ahead and just say these are different. Yeah, and there may not be like any one line between a parent and its child, but there's definitely different clusters. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's what Eliezer says. That the challenge is figuring out which things are similar to each other, which things are clustered together. And sometimes, which things have a common cause? And he says this is a bit of an empirical question. Th- that's basically the entirety of the post, as much as I can figure it. I like the example that he used. Do you mind if I drop it here? I always like it when you, when you uh, read these verbatim, so go nuts. Okay. He says, if you define electromagnetism to include lightning, include compasses, exclude light, 
and include Mesmer's animal magnetism, <laughs> what, what we now call hypnosis, then you will have some trouble asking, how does electromagnetism work? And I skip ahead a little bit. We could say that electromagnetism is a wrong word, a boundary in thing space that loops around and swerves through the clusters, a cut that fails to carve reality along its natural joints. And I don't remember if this is a post which introduced this concept, but the concept of carving reality at the joints when we use language has become pretty big in rationalist space since these sequences were written. And it is it is this particular idea that some things do cluster together, like uh, light and magnetism and lightning, and some things like hypnosis do not. And having words that correctly will group the like things together and not the unlike things together can be both a challenge and uh, something that helps us when we're trying to make sense of the world. Like asking how does electromagnetism work is a very difficult question if you include hypnosis. Right. And and exclude light. Yeah. I, I can't remember, you're right, if this is the phrase, if this is one that introduces that phrase, but it has worked its way into the, the nomenclature. I, 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 I know I heard this phrase on a podcast at some point in the last two weeks nice win-win versus moloch the many-headed monster that may consume us all with liv bori i think that's how you say her last name i remembered i heard a conversation with her on lex Friedman's podcast like a year or so ago mm-hmm. but i think on this one she said something about carving reality at the joints to me that's like a signal of like oh okay she's read the sequences or she's sufficiently involved in the community that this this is uh seeped in right yeah that's the name of the podcast uh that's the name of the episode it's on uh clearer thinking is the podcast Oh, okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. Well, I am um, subscribed to Clear Thinking. I will go download that one. It was fun. I'll uh, we'll put a link in the description here. Hell yes. Did you have anything else to say about drawing a boundary? I mean, I like his closers. Usually, he says that uh, you know you can't hide behind a comforting shield of correct by definition. Both extensional mm-hmm. definitions and intentional definitions can be wrong, can fail to carve reality of the joints. Uh, categorizing is a guessing endeavor in which you can make mistakes. So it's wise to be able to admit it from a theoretical standpoint that your definition guesses can be mistaken. Again, if this is, this is one of those things where if you've got some stupid definition of human, uh, then the second an edge case comes up, you're, you're going to be just trapped into this ridiculous circumstance, whether it's believing that a miscarriage is equivalent to a murder or that an M it has no moral value, right? Mm-hmm. And by M, that's an emulated human. Yes, thank you. I jargon dropped without uh, explaining. Yeah, I- I'm sure most people are familiar, but it's been a while since we talked about them, so maybe the new listeners wouldn't be. Nope, valuable. Quick lower quality audio note here to mention that we forgot to plug the next two less wrong posts that we're reading called Super Exponential Concept Space and Simple Words and Leave a Line of Retreat. Speaking of valuable, we've got two valuable things to mention before we sign off. Hell yes, we do. Uh, The first one is the Guild of the Rose, which is a very valuable organization that exists both in reality and in cyberspace, (laughs) which are two different places that have a boundary between them. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm not going to apologize for this. Not to put too much uh, punnery into this, but I think by definition, they are the, the group in the world that's doing the most concerted effort to hone rationality skills. Like the, the, one of the main weaknesses of CIFAR was that, you know, you'd fly out to the Bay Area for three weeks and you had to be basically rich to do it, right? It cost mm-hmm. a bucket of money and you had to be able to afford that time off work. Not like I'm not putting down what they did. It was great, but like th- that was a huge weakness. And I think they, they haven't officially closed up shop, but they've like pivoted. Anyway, if you, if you want to actually practice your rationality skills, there's a real place you could do it. The Guild of the Rose. 
get better, get smarter, make wiser decisions, win more often. They've been operating for many years now. I think it started around COVID times. So like what, three going on more than three years now? They have a online community where everybody supports each other and helps each other learn things. And they have quite a few courses that you can take for free. Like you said, help you become more rational and flex your rationalist muscles, learn new rational skills, or even just get better at the things you want to be rational about. Exactly. Who doesn't want to win more often? One can find the Guild of the Rose at guildoftherose.org and a link in the show notes as always. Right on. And someone else who's already winning at life is the patron we got to thank this week. This week, we would like to thank our patron, Faze Abbas, for helping to bring this show to you. Faze, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, pretty new contributor to the Discord. I remember seeing this name popping up just uh, just recently a fair bit more. I'm assuming been a lurker for a little while, certainly been a patron for quite a few months now. Welcome to the Discord community, and thank you so much for supporting us. This means a lot and helps us keep all this thing coming and uh, helps us to continue educating the people who wish to listen to us about education or other topics. See, I'm tying this into the thing that we talked about earlier, which we haven't talked about yet. You did it so well that like, I wanted to like add something, but I guess I can just say, yeah, what Inyash said. Um, <laughs> no, thank you, Faze. It makes a world of difference and we appreciate it. As always, you can find us on Patreon. We're always happy to accept the support, you know, pay the bills here. Like and review us. That certainly helps too on your podcaster of choice. And just a reminder to all of our patrons and potential patrons and past patrons, our reward tiers aren't, we never really did anything with them. So no, we didn't. Anything we can help with, you know, or any reasonable request, we're absolutely willing to entertain. You know, I we've we've received a, you know requests to do a couple episodes on stuff that like we're just not experts on and wouldn't really, I think, have you know unless we're going to become scholars in that field, wouldn't really be be handy. But uh, we're open to hearing anything and want to do whatever we can for you to repay the favor. So thanks for listening. It's always a pl- this is always fun to do. I hope you guys have fun listening, and uh, we'll see you guys back here in a couple weeks. Hell yeah! Peace out. Thank you, Stephen. You bet. See ya. Thank you.